Hello, this is listener Michelle C. from Rochester, Minnesota. Um, if you're old like me, you might know the urban legend behind the Phil Collins song, In the Air Tonight. Um, people take the lyrics literally and think that it's about Phil Collins watching a man who watches another man as he drowns. And then Phil Collins sends him a ticket to a concert and shines the spotlight on him and points him out as someone who didn't help a drowning man. Love listening to you guys. Have a good night. Bye. Doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. Hi my little pumpkins, my little shining stars. I've missed you all so very much. I hope you're enjoying your summer. I hope It's warm and sunny where you are. And I hope that if you want to sing out. Sing out. And if you want to be free. Be free. Because there's a million things to be. You know that there are. So true. Some of the greatest words ever sung. Cat Stevens is responsible for a very large number of those amazing words that are sung. So true. Before we get there, we want to thank everyone for coming back. We want to remind everyone that you can leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. It's always well appreciated. It gives us a little, little emotional dopamine bump. And also, I thought we had medication for that. That too. Whatever. <laughs> Wherever we can get it. And also helps other people find the show. We want to remind you that you can check out our website at justastorypod.com to find... All kind of stuff about the show, links to the merch store. Merchy, merchy, merch, merch. Someone bought a shower curtain with a cat on it. Uh, That's amazing. (laughs) I was super excited about that. And we also have links to our Patreon page where you can get all sorts of fun extra stuff and help support the show. And just a programming note, you know, we are kind of wonky on our release dates until the kids go back to school. Also, we bought a house. That too. Yay! All that's going on, but we're still working on the show. It just, we might not be releasing every week, at least until mid August when our small little demons that live with us. Their sweet, sweet babies leave us and go to school. We're so sad to see them go learn. I have like a Robinson Crusoe style tally mark system going in the bedroom right now for the days that are left. We are going to lose our deposit on this rent house. (laughs) And there's one more way to get in touch with us, ladies and gentlemen, and that is by calling the Urban Legend Hotline. And the number for the Urban Legend Hotline is 512-222-3375. And once you have dialed that number into your little keypad or rotary phone, if you're really old school, you can get to our voicemail. When you get to our voicemail, you can tell us something. Tell us a story, tell us a joke, sing us a song, you know, give us a recap of what's going on on your favorite TV show. I don't care. I just love hearing from you all. And speaking of, this Week's story came from the Urban Legend Hotline. It's true, it's true. And we've been talking about doing like hidden meanings of songs or misunderstood songs or something like that forever. 
It's literally been on the list, I think, since day one. And this was the perfect opportunity. Inspired us. And so we're going to start this week off talking about everyone's uh, dad-bodded rock god. Favorite among the dad-bod yeah, rock god sets, which rhymes. And if there's not a band named dad-bod rock god. We hope there is now. You are welcome to use it. But that would be uh, Phil Collins, of course. So before he did the music for Tarzan, you're telling me this guy had a career. Before, yes, he did. So, you know, he replaced Peter Gabriel. No one can replace Peter Gabriel. I mean, he, he physically replaced him. Okay. Uh, in Genesis and had some hits. And then he went on to the solo music. Had some more hits. Lots, you know. Can't think of a single one off the top of my head right now. I'm ruining it. He's not my favorite. He's everyone's favorite. But he's my favorite dad-bodded rock god. <laughs> because I do not qualify for the rock god status, <laughs> but do qualify for the dad-bod status. But I am rocking it. You are rocking the dad-bod. But he does have that, like, just one really great song that it's really hard to argue. Is a great song. It's, it's a great song. In the air tonight. Are you going to do it? I can feel it. Coming in the air tonight. I was waiting for the... Which is, everyone loves to air drum that. I don't think you get to stay in society if you don't, at least a little. Even your fingers. If you're driving, you do the finger taps on the steering wheel. Especially if you're rocking the dad bod. (laughs) Finger gun. Finger gun, steering wheel, air drumming, dad bod. You've got all of this. But you hear the song. Do you think it's like a happy song? Is it a sad song? I think it's sad. It's a, it's a very it's like, very aggressive. It has a. I find it to be like a come at me bro song. Yeah, I can see that. Like it's got it's kind of a pump up song. I bet people have it on their like workout mixes or running oh, I've mixes. I've heard at the gym. Yeah, many a time. Yeah, I, I think it, it's got a lot of adrenaline and chutzpah to it. Yeah. So the urban legend for this song, I definitely grew up hearing. So the version I grew up hearing was that he was like partying and he was out like at his beach house like on a cliff Mm -hmm. and he was wasted and he witnessed someone kill somebody else and he reported it to police and was total boy scout about it he wrote a song about it instead okay but there are actually lots that's a way to go yeah there are lots of versions of this story it's kind of fun so here are a few from the uh internet (laughs) (laughs) thank you internet I've heard this from several sources around here. The way I heard it, Phil and his wife family are raped, killed, while he was then tied up and forced to watch. Later, Phil is on the shore of some body of water while he sees somebody capsized that can't swim. Recognizing him as the man who inflicted this horrible crime upon his family, he let the guy drown. I can say that that is, that is impossible, that that did not happen. Like, just categorically, if somebody is telling me this at a bar and I'm seven drinks in, I'm like, no. Definitely happened. No, I'm like, mm-mm. That's the only time you're like, no way. I'd be like, no way, you said that out loud? <laughs> I heard a similar story about 10 years ago about that song. I believe I heard it on Casey Kasem's Top 40 when I was a young lass. A lass, that's cute. According to memory, Phil and a buddy were sailing and a downpour started, which caused the boat to capsize. Phil was swimming to shore with his friend and saw a guy sitting on his dock just watching them. He screamed for him to help. Apparently the guy had a boat and everything. But the guy just sat there and watched. Phil made it back to shore, but his friend drowned. Phil later tracked this guy down and sent him front row tickets to a nearby concert. 
The guy showed up and Phil sang in the air tonight while staring at him the whole time. That's very elaborate revenge ploy and so passive aggressive. All of these legends are hyper passive aggressive, right? I guess the song sounds kind of like passive aggressive. Maybe. <laughs> like dad bought aggressive. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the stories vary on who dies and things, but he tracks the guy down, doesn't call the cops. Gives him front row tickets, and then in the middle of the show, when he goes to sing the song, the spotlight is straight on the guy. Okay, this is not the story of Phil Collins. This is the story of the music meister. Like, this is the music meister from Batman and, like, his origin story. This is not even in the realm of not comic books. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very impossible. Who knows, though? We'll see. So, after the show, after this all happens, the guy... Kills himself. Yeah, Obviously. Or? Or turns himself in. Is arrested. So the cops are like waiting there and they're like, after this number, boys, that's our cue. You stay stage left. Yeah, dramatic effect. Uh, He loses his job. Wife divorces him. Whatever. Fill in the blank. He gets his comeuppance in one way or another. Through music. Through the power of music and revenge. And kick-ass drum solos. Hold on. Another person said, okay, my first girlfriend was a big Genesis slash Phil Collins fan. Why? (laughs) He's got a few good songs. He does, but who's like, you know what I just can't live without? True colors shining through. But according to something she'd heard in the air tonight was inspired by Phil finding his then wife in bed with another man at a party they were attending. More plausible. So I've always thought that these urban legends were kind of silly. Yes. But if you look at the lyrics, I'm like, okay, that's not that crazy. Walk me through it. So I've been waiting for this moment all my life. Okay. If you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand. I've seen your face before, my friend, but I don't know if you know who I am. Well, I was there and I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. So you can wipe off that grin. I know where you've been. It's all been a pack of lies. I mean, sure, sure. I don't see murder in this. Where's the murder? He saw it happen. He saw something. He's not going to remember. I don't know. And, you know, this urban legend is referenced in the Eminem song, Stan. Oh, good. Now, that's something I haven't thought about since, like, middle school. Since Elton John did the song with him? Yeah, it was weird. Or, like, the Grammys or whatever? It's weird. So, what did he What did he reference? What did he say? He saw a murder. Oh. No. <laughs> no, he didn't? Mm-mm. I believe Eminem saw a murder. <laughs> that's probably true. So, Phil wrote the song during the grief he felt after divorcing his first wife in 1980. He said, I wrote the lyrics spontaneously. I'm not quite sure what the song is about, but there's a lot of anger, a lot of despair, and a lot of frustration. Like I said, a pump-up song. Yeah, you know, it's it's this build-up, kind of ominous-sounding song with these really kind of ominous lyrics, like very macabre-sounding. He said, I was just fooling around. I got these chords that I liked. So I turned the mic on and started singing. The lyrics you hear are what I wrote spontaneously. That frightens me a bit, but I'm quite proud of the fact that I sang 99.9% of those lyrics spontaneously. Cool. And it's got that weird sound because in order to compensate for the sound level differences, Mm -hmm. the circuit has a compressor on it. 
which can minimize the differences between the loud and soft sounds, mm-hmm. which is like what we do and we record edit, edit yeah. the show. And so they ran the whole track through there. And that's how it gets this kind of compressed, huh. weird feel to it. It is. It's got like this very omnipresent hiss throughout the song, but it's not like a like a cassette player or something like that. Like it does, right. but it it sounds intentional. But there is like a through the whole thing. Yeah. It's creepy. It's a creepy song. Yeah, and so Phil. I mean, there's another fun story about him being kind of spiteful. He was playing on top of the pops, big show in the UK, especially back then. I don't know if it's still around. But when Phil found out that his former wife had run off with a painter and a decorator, he performed this song with a pot of paint and a brush on a workbench next to a keyboard. So he was passive aggressive is what you're saying. Oh, yes. He was. He was a bit passive aggressive. So somehow a bucket of paint turned into murder. Murder. Murder most foul. He said, people used to say to me, don't you feel embarrassed showing your dirty laundry? And really, I didn't, because it was the only way I knew how to write songs. With Genesis, it had all been surreal and science fiction, and I felt this was more me. Of course, to my ex-wife, it was me telling my side of the story, and it was resented. So you're telling me there was no murder? Not related to the song. Maybe the murder of his heart. Of his naivety. Of his optimism. Yes. Positive outlook on life. Yeah. Something. So, we kind of mentioned how this song has this sound. And it gives you just this feeling. You don't even have to listen to the words to know that it has this really dark sound to it. So, there are many elements to songs that give it a certain emotional feel. But one that is really important, other than like tempo, of course, would be if it's in a major key or a minor key. Major, minor. Major is happy. Happy. Bright. Minor is sad. Sad. Sad Dissonant. Okay. Yes, that seems like a key element in your songwriting. Is this a major or minor key? Oh, D minor. D minor. All right. Minor key. No question. Now, this is held fairly universal in Western music. Okay. But, of course, there are many examples of songs that are in a major key, so they sound... Happy! But they're not happy Happy. songs. And you may think they're happy until you really look into it. And guess what? We did. (laughs) Shocking, I know. Shocking. Okay. So, I was looking through, like, lists of things where it's like, songs you don't really know what they're about, and things like that. Like, you'll never guess what so-and-so is actually about. And I found this thing that was like... This Rolling Stones song is about slavery. What? And I was like, bullshit. Like, fully did not believe it. (laughs) There's some bands that write songs that you just want to, like, pour over the lyrics and, like, parse and take everything apart and put it back together again. And you can just spend hours in the words, right? And that's where I live. That's the music I pick. Yeah, but you love the Stones. I like Beast of Burden. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. Like, I absolutely love it. And that's not about slavery. (laughs) Though it sounds like it could Could be. So I've never once listened to Brown Sugar not in public. Like, I've never of my own volition been like, you know what I need? I need to hear Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones. Of course. Yeah, it's always like in the background. Yeah. The song and you're like, okay, it's about... Brown Sugar. About, like, having intimate relations with a female of African-American descent. (laughs) Wow, you just PC'd that right up. Look at you there. People would always say it was like specifically about like 
a black girl and I'd be like, nah, maybe she's just a brunette. <laughs> like, this is how much attention I'm paying to the song. But I looked at the lyrics and lo and behold, they're fucking terrible. <laughs> really? See, so, like, all I know is like, just like a young girl should. Which is still like, ew. Yeah. But. How young? Ew. This um, is my D. This is not going to end well for you, Mick. I'm going to read these in an intelligible non-Mick Jagger voice. And you're going to tell me on a scale of one to ten how offensive the shit is. Gold Coast slave ship bound for cotton fields. Is it the first line? Yep. Because it sounds like... <laughs> Sold in a market down in New Orleans. Yeah, all I got was New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. That's what I got too. Scarred old slaver knows he's doing all right. Hear him whip the women just around midnight. See, all guys, the man. Oh my God, this is terrible. It is fucking awful. Brown sugar, how come you taste so good? Brown sugar, just like a young girl should. Drums beaten cold, English blood runs hot. Lady of the house wondering when it's going to stop. No. House boy knows he's doing all right. You should have heard him just around midnight. No. That's what it says. Brown sugar, again. Mm-hmm. I bet your mama was a Cajun queen, and all her boyfriends were sweet 16. I'm no schoolboy, but I know what I like. You should have heard them just around midnight. Oh, my God. <laughs> so terrible. So, you're like, what does Mick have to say about this? So, in 1995, older and wiser and more wrinkly, more well-preserved... Mick says, the lyrics went a bit far. <laughs> no shit. No, no, <laughs> no shit. Really? He's, quote, quote the Jagger, he say. God knows what I'm on about in that song. He's like, I don't know what it's about. I don't know. Who it's knows what such I was, a mishmash. Who knows what I was on when I wrote that song? All those nasty subjects in one go. I would never write that song now. I would probably censor myself. I'd think, oh, God, I can't. I've got to stop. I can't just write raw like that. <gasps> oh, oh, Mac. So one article explores the darker themes of this song. It says Rolling Stones debuted Brown Sugar at Altamont in 1969, which went well. We shall discuss this later. We'll get that. It's the first track on the lead single of the 1971 album Sticky Fingers. Which was like one of their biggest albums Mm -hmm. ever, and one of the biggest albums ever. Thousands of people are now preparing to dance while jubilantly singing about slavery, heroin, cunnilingus, and rape. When you put it like that. Crank up the jams, oh my god. Brown sugar is gross, sexist, and stunningly offensive toward black women. And originally, it was titled Black Pussy. But Jagger, (laughs) during a rare moment of clear-headedness in 1969, decided it was too nitty-gritty, quote, and nixed it. Everything else, the misogyny, the racism, the sexism, and the references to drugs and cunnilingus would stay. I mean, God. I mean, like... (laughs) Like, That's where he censored himself. He's like, that's too much. (laughs) Right there. Sorry. Can't wait to hear the old slaver whip the girls just around midnight. Black po- Oh, no, that's too much. It's too much. It's too much. Brown sugar. There we go. There we go. That's better. I like that Mick Jagger writing this song, by the way, is recorded in Muscle Shoals in Mississippi. Like, just to add another layer of, like, good Lord, man. Like, had the good sense to be like, eh, the word pussy's too far. <laughs> I won't comment on other people's judgment on that word. 
All right, give me another one. Give me another one. Another, you say. Well, from rape, pillage, murder, and slavery, we go to murder. Just murder. All these songs. Most foul. Murder, most foul. So, her name was Lola. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. She was a showgirl. Yellow feathers in her hair and a dress cut down to there. Are you a fan of Lou? I am not a fan of Lou. Me neither. <laughs> but I know that the man does what he does well. And, you know, he has had the same hair forever. And I guess that's something. <laughs> so Barry Manilow wrote Copacabana. And it is a epic showpiece, if you will, about a showgirl. Her name was Lola. And she works at a bar called the Copacabana, and she has a boyfriend who tends bar at the Copa, and his name is Tony. Okay, so like, this sounds like fun. What happens? Murder! Murder! (laughs) I told you, murder! But this is like the most upbeat song ever. Seriously ever. Okay, so then we meet Rico. His name was Rico. He wore a diamond. Oh, no. Bad news. That's not a good sign. Bad news. And so he falls in love with Lola. He's making advances toward Lola, sexually harassing her on her job. Mm. And then uh, good, good, Tony yeah. steps in and machismo spills over and there is a scuffle and someone gets shot. And oh, we no. don't learn until the last verse of the song who it was. And it was Tony. Oh, no. His name was Tony. But her name is Lola. She was a showgirl, so she's still there. Not in the Copacabana show anymore. It's 30 years on. And now we have a coda for the song. Oh, yeah, really? Yes, we do. But that was 30 years ago when she used to have a show. Now it's a disco, but not for Lola. Still in her dress, she used to wear faded feathers in her hair. She sits there so refined and drinks herself half blind. She's lost her youth. She's lost her Tony. She's lost her mind. Copa. Copa Cabana. Yeah. Uh, And then it ends with don't fall in love. Wow. That's an epic story song if there ever was one. Right. But you would never know how dark it is. It's like a Miss Haversham goes to the Copa song. (laughs) One way you would know it was bad is if you went see the musical. So it was originally a made-for-TV movie. Hooray. After the song, Manilow was like, you know what, There, there's something there. We need to explore further. And so they did a made-for-TV movie. And then it was developed into a musical. Now, here is the pitch for the musical, like if you wanted to order it to perform it or whatever. Like in middle school or something? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I would see a bunch of cracking voice boys in like chest-bearing, navel-grazing <laughs> shirts with their hair slicked back. So, her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. So begins this tale of romance and stardom that has captivated audiences across the globe. With sensational originality, Barry Manilow's Copacabana is a show that will leave you breathless. Stephen, a present-day aspiring songwriter, is in the midst of writing a tune that tells the story of Lola, fresh off the plane from Tulsa. She arrives in New York with showbiz aspirations. Tony is a bartender slash composer who falls in love with her and helps her become a Copa girl. Lola, of course, attracts the amorous attentions of Rico. When Rico goes a bit too far by abducting Lola and And taking her to his rival nightclub in Havana, Tony and the whole Copa crew set off to rescue Lola. 
Audiences will delight in the Copacabana's splashy production numbers and the slew of brand new Barry Manilow songs. Oh, hell yes. A return to traditional American musical theater flair. The large cast size boasts numerous chances for performers to shine, while the title alone will incite the interest of subscribers and in- entice newcomers to the theater. I think I'll stick with South Pacific. Yeah. Gonna wash that man right out of my hair. That song's about washing a man out of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rogers and Hammerstein were not nearly as deep as Barry Manilow. No, no. So another one. Another one. I have one. another one. And this one's for all you Beyonce's and Lucy Lou's. Oh, no. <laughs> this is Hey Ya. I guess we need a modern song. Modern-ish. We were in high school. Shut up. That was just like two days ago. Just kidding. It was forever ago. So, again, really hard to process this one because it is one of so the upbeat. happiest songs ever recorded. Like, so upbeat. If you don't dance a little, it's like the drum solo. You're yeah. off the island. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're dad dancing in the car when this comes on. So, we'll pull quote for you. Some sample lyrics. My baby don't mess around because she loves me so. This I know for show. But does she really wanna? But can't stand to see me walk out that door. Don't try to fight the feeling because the thought alone is killing me right now. Thank God for mom and dad for sticking together like we don't know how. Oh God, that's so depressing. Hey, hey, hey yeah. yeah. Oh why oh why oh why oh. Are we still in denial when we know we're not happy here? So Andre 3000 said, The song isn't autobiographical. It's more like fantasies or tangents based on real life. Moments from my life spark a thought when I'm writing, and the story for this song was set in the 50s. So the song was me trying to do a Woody Allen kind of thing. Oh, definitely. (laughs) A humorous kind of honesty. We actually reached out to Woody Allen to appear in the video. Oh, I wish. Oh my God, my dreams would be coming true. He's such a terrible man. But really, like, Crimes and Misdemeanors was probably his last great work. But we don't have to tell Woody that. In another interview, he goes on to say, Hey Ya is pretty much about the state of relationships in the 2000s. It's about people who stay together in relationships because of tradition, because somebody told them you guys are supposed to stay together, but you pretty much end up being unhappy for the rest of your life. Right. It's about being unhappy for the rest of your life. Happy here. That's, there's more to that line. (laughs) (laughs) I know we didn't know that, but. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, those are great examples of songs that have this upbeat tempo and are in major keys that we automatically assume are happy songs. Right. They're happy, happy songs. They have to be happy. But it has long been held. If you are learning music, the first thing you learn is major key equals happy. Minor key equals sad. And that is something that is very entrenched in Western musical tradition Mm -hmm. since at least the 17th century. And it's long been held that it's purely... Cultural. Not biological. Like, this is something that we grow up associating. Like, pink and blue for boys and girls. Right. Yeah, now it's purely cultural, but we can't, like, shake it. Right. And so, you grow up hearing happy songs in major keys, Mm -hmm. and you associate that feeling. This is the kind of older thought about it. And so, something like the wedding march, or happy birthday. Those are major songs. Something like Chopin's Funeral March. 
It's a minor song. But so, to bring home the point, I'm going to play some songs okay. that are traditionally in minor, and this fantastic musician, Ian Gordon, has rewritten them as major songs. Oh, fun. So my first impression is it sounds like a working song. Okay. Like it sounds like a factory song or like a, some kind of like assembly line just because of the driving. My pitch for the movie based on the sound. Like yes. if I'm going to I'm fantasia-ing this. Okay. I would pitch that it's about like those old Disney uh, cars with eyes. Like not the new computer animated ones, but they have to be hand-drawn. And it's like coming off the assembly line and going out into the world for the first time. Okay. Okay, I feel like, yeah, I feel like the end sounds like triumphant. Mm-hmm. Like, so, definitely. But, of course, it's it's Jaws. Oh, uh, or about a shark that eats people. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, here's another one. This one's fun. Screeching kind of gives that one away. <laughs> so I, I do recognize it, but I'm going to, again, fantasia it. And I'm going to tell you my vision for what this is and how it makes sense to me. It is a movie about a young girl in a castle. Like, it's got a very, like, going down winding staircases, out into the forest, tight close-ups, opening scene. The shrill noises at the beginning are, like, the day starting downstairs with the servants. And then she's like waking up and as the music warms up more and more, she's moving into an outside space. But it's definitely, I feel like it's got a very female sound, a very feminine interior space, warmth and very opening of the movie. I thought, take the screeching out. Sounds like it could be an indie rom-com. Oh yeah, I can see that. Again, tight close-ups opening, definitely for Mm -hmm, sure. mm -hmm. It's the first song in the movie. (laughs) And by the way, Tis Psycho. Tis the theme Uh, from Psycho. (laughs) So that sounds like a happy child in a field. Right? It's happy, happy. It sounds like... I was thinking like it could be like a Saturday morning cartoon... I can see it. It has to be like in space, if that's the case. I was thinking, or like something like that, fantasy. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the X Men theme. When it's, that's what I was thinking, like Saturday morning cartoon, like eighties, nineties. But yeah, I can see like kids like jumping and playing in a field of wheat on their way to play baseball. You know, like it's very happy. It's yeah. it's, it's X Files. It's it is it's X Files. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
that is definitely going to catch your lover at an airport. Okay, I thought it sounded like it could be the montage, like getting ready for like an adventure. Like packing your bags yeah. and like getting your backpack on. See, I think it has like more of a, a grand finale feel. Like I feel like it's the, uh, the end of a romantic comedy. Okay. It's definitely okay. like, and it's moving, you know. That's what I was thinking. Like yeah. it kind of builds up anticipation. Mm. It, it's Halloween. <laughs> That's meant to build up anticipation, but not the way we're talking about. <laughs> Which, by the way, Halloween in its original form is one of the best movie scores uh, ever. So. As is Psycho. But I think we've talked about that for like an hour on another <laughs> episode. <laughs> so you can see how this these songs that are very much meant to be scary, building up like a sense of dread, you just switch the key from minor to major and it sounds completely different right it sounds triumphant it sounds like nervous excited energy it sounds like children playing in a field of wheat yeah and so it's not consistently adopted in other musical cultures and traditions so it's very much a western thing the consistency of it okay one thing i was curious about thinking just kind of thinking while i was reading this is if that's changed as we've become more global, mm. you know, and people are watching horror movies and watching things like that from the get-go as kids in China or wherever, and, you know, they are exposed to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't find anything like that. It's just a thought. While cultural exposure is a huge element of it, there is a little more to it. Minor chords do have more of a sensory, like, dissonance. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like where the sounds just don't fit perfectly together. It's kind of a terrible way of explaining it. Cool. I love those. I do this all the time. And what it is, is it's a clashing of closely spaced frequencies. Okay. So they have had studies where they've played minor and major chords and songs to people from other cultures to see how they responded. So there was one study... Uh, down of the Mafa tribe in northern Cameroon. And so at the time of the study, no exposure to Western music or cultural traditions. And they found that the Mafa tribe did actually respond correctly to this is supposed to be a happy song and this is supposed to be a sad song. But it wasn't as strong of an association Mm -hmm. as in the U.S., let's say. So there is a little bit of method to the madness of this cultural trope like it really is like playing on pre-existing associations it does it does there's there's there are multiple elements that play into it so there's another element too is that it's related to language Mm -hmm. and so it's actually a really old idea aristotle even wrote about it suspecting that the emotional impact of music may be at least partly due to the way that it mimicked our own vocalizations. Mm. It's like when we squeal for joy or cry out in anger. And of course, if you look at tempo too, a fast, loud, jumpy rhythm sounds happy. Right. And that's how an excited person behaves and talks. Versus slow, quiet music with this regular beat mimics a more mournful, emotional state. Okay, so it's like we're play-acting and then making music to go with our performance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that minor third, that part of the musical core that creates that dissonance in sound, is actually found in language a lot, too. 
Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. So Megan Curtis, who's at Tufts, did a study where she took actors and had them say like a sad line or a happy line. And then she broke it down into the musical frequencies and had a chord. Interesting. Yeah. And so she found that whenever they spoke like a sad line, they were supposed to be sad, it encompassed that minor third element. And so when listeners replayed the same speech melodies with the words taken away, they accurately interpreted the actor's emotions. That is so interesting. Oh my God, I want to read her papers. So this is why when my mom calls and she's like, how, how is everything? And I say, it's fine. What do you mean? it's fine in one of my classes when I was in college there was a girl in my class who said that her friend who was in film school said that the scores for movies were cheating because they were emotional fascism I love it it's true (laughs) I mean so is the lighting if you want to get into it but whatever okay right I mean all of the elements of a movie go into getting you to feel what they want you to feel right But it is interesting because music is so ingrained in our souls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that link to language has always been a hotly debated topic, apparently since Aristotle. You are telling me that scholars debated? Scholars debate. Your favorite scholar got under fire about this exact debate. What they say about my Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker. What they say about my Steven Pinker. So in one of Steven Pinker's books, he said that music was auditory cheesecake. Okay. All music? Yeah. Steven. He was referring to it in relation to language. He said it was a delightful dessert rather than the main dish of language. Okay. Apparently I have just uh, an affinity for people who are dismissive of everything except the written word. In facts, because I once had a professor named Larry Snipe who told me that creative writing, as opposed to journalism, was just masturbation. (laughs) Similar sentiment. And I was like, okay, I get that. But I see what he's saying. It's like you don't need music to communicate. And it is like set aside as this like thing to digest at your leisure. When you want something salty, you go get potato chips or a minor sad song or you go get a piece of cheesecake when you want the super hey uh excited happy song like you can set it you're so wrong you're like this cheesecake is i think it went bad (laughs) exactly but it's such a highly debated topic about kind of chicken or egg what came first language music did they kind of co-evolve? Did they yeah. come about at the same time? Or is music just that happy little side product? Just the little cheesecake, a little dessert? You don't think in music. Great question. I didn't, it was not a question, it was a statement. It was an emphatically stated statement. You don't think in music. But madame, oh, a study. Shut up about your study. You didn't even know what I'm going to say. No. You me right into it. I was it. just thinking about like how I was using words in my head. I was using music. No, you were not. You're a lying liar pants. Feel the rhythm of the night, Sam. Feel the beat of the rhythm of the night. So you get the words wrong. because I was living in the music. Shut up. The music is not there. So researchers wanted to look at the brains of jazz musicians who often engage in, of course, improvisation. Right. They do speak music. It's another language. Exactly. So... 
what they did was they were able to show that there was activation in the same brain areas traditionally associated with spoken language and syntax. In other words, improvisational jazz conversations do take root in the brain as a language. So does math. I didn't say math wasn't a language. I'm just saying it's, if anything, it is learning a second language. That is an important part. It's like, is it like another language or is it just this like little side product? You know, is it just extra happy? So during a spoken conversation, the brain is busy processing structure and syntax of language as well as semantics. Yeah. So it's really interesting because they showed that it only activates the first two. So you get the structure and syntax part of it but not the semantic part. Isn't that interesting? So it, the music does this. The music activates your yeah. first two processes, but it doesn't go into the semantic process that exactly. the brain uses to understand language. Exactly. Well, a language without semantics is not a language I <laughs> want to be part of. <laughs> I mean, you could just like debate that forever and talk about it forever. But it's interesting to see where it's kind of rooted in, you know? And of course, jazz, even though it seems it's like crazy out of nowhere, and we're not talking about free jazz. Free jazz is its own own three-legged dog of an animal. <laughs> Ugly three-legged dog. <laughs> but it's it has a structure, you know? Music has a very and One of the best basis. conversations I've ever had with a stranger was at a coffee shop one day, a guy had like met that was like your friend. He didn't even know us our friends. No, like we sat down and talked our way through how improvisation in jazz works. And I do find it very fascinating. But I think that jazz musicians in particular do converse it is. using music in a way that even other musicians do not. Like I think it is is definitely its own kind of thought process. Because you can be the greatest guitar soloist in the world and get into like a improv jazz jam session or whatever and not be able to keep up. But you can pick it up very easily. And so, I mean, you know, you can also take that to other cultures and there are other cultures where improvisation is a big part of music. And so you can just safely assume that it's similar there as well. So one other interesting element of music. That is that goes... it's not language. <laughs> no. Okay. Look, cheesecake. <laughs> How dare you? Is that there's an anticipation to music. So, you know, songs, most especially pop songs, of course, have a structure. Right. And so by anticipating where the song's going, we do get like a rush of dopamine. But we do rely heavily on our memory from the body of music we've heard all of our life. So by accessing that back catalog, we have these expectations, which is one of the ways we enjoy music. When I was a kid, I was listening to the radio at my parents' friend's house in their den. Pause for a moment. I must describe the den. This is the Barbie den? <laughs> this is the Barbie den. And at the time, they had a Harley Davidson motorcycle parked in front of the fireplace. <laughs> I didn't know that part of things. Shag carpet, sparkles on the ceiling. The whole nine. They had a waterbed, too. These were some very... We're not getting into that. Very cool people. But anyway, I was listening to the country radio station. I've swam in their pool. I know. I feel dirty. Uh, Shower, excuse me. <laughs> but a radio DJ came on, the local country radio station, and he was talking about the song that had just played, and he's like, ah, that's a great country song, because it's a country song you can sing 
the chorus with the second time you hear it. Yes. And you love to prove this point. Yes. <laughs> All the time. This is where it comes from. I didn't know if you knew the genesis I of the not. thought. I did not. But there is something, like if you listen to country music and you're very familiar with it, you will be able to do that. Oh, yeah. And it's not, I don't know. That oh, you do that even the second time. Yeah. By the end of the song, right. you can sing the chorus and like know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And that's because you have this massive 80s, 90s country. <laughs> back catalog locked in your brain where I'm sure more important information could be. Oh, what? That's not nice. Oh, I've got tons of terrible information <laughs> just logged back there. Don't worry. But the same is kind of true for pop music. You could definitely say, oh, no, like, yeah. you know, top 40 kind of music. Definitely. I find it's less true in, like, post-70s, post-1970 forward rock mm. and uh, hip-hop. I feel like they have more of a... I, th- I think as you were saying, like the structure was super tight in the 50s and 60s right. with the pop music, of course, like, you know, all the, you know, first early rock music, all the Motown, mm-hmm. like followed very, very strict. You know, this has to be two minutes and 59 seconds. It mm-hmm. has to have like verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, done. And we're that's, out. You know, and that's it. You're out. Put the next 45 on, you know. But you're right. In the 70s. You know, people started mixing it up. And that's another thing that can bring enjoyment to a song is if it goes somewhere you don't expect it. Like the drum solo in In the Air Tonight. Or like this song. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. No escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see I'm just a cool boy I need no sympathy Because I'm easy come, easy go Little high, little low Anyway the wind blows Doesn't really matter So, Queen. Yay! Queen. I love Queen. You love Queen more than me. I was obsessed with Queen. You do. I don't ever let you love anything more than I love it. Because I'm a woman of strong opinions on everything. But my Queen tramp stamp. Yeah, that puts you over the top. That is true. People don't know that's Freddie Mercury's mustache, but it is. Oh, it is. Oh, yes, it is. So, of course, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody... God, you have to know this song. (laughs) And if you don't, really, go listen now. Stop what you're doing. Pause it. Go listen to the song. The whole thing. No, like really the whole thing. It's You're not done. You think you're done. (laughs) Because it's like four songs. It's four movements at least. Yes. And so, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the biggest rock songs ever. And it is one of the weirdest rock songs ever. Ever. It's a masterpiece, and that's one of those things that, you know, if you don't think it is, you're just trying to be that asshole of the bar. We've met him. Oh, yeah. Not friends. So, Brian May, the guitarist for Queen, was talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, and he said, That was a great moment, but the biggest thrill for us was actually creating the music in the first place. I remember Freddie coming in with loads of bits of paper from his dad's work, like post-it notes and pounding on the piano. He played the piano like most people play the drums. (laughs) 
This song was full of gaps where he explained that something operatic would happen here, <laughs> and so on. But he'd worked out all the harmonies in his head. So in his London home, where he did most of his work, he actually slept in front of a piano, which doubled as his bed's headboard. And when inspiration struck in the middle of the night, he'd sit up and reach back behind his head to play the piano. This is why he's one of my favorite humans. Like, it's just, it's amazing. And Roger Taylor, one of the other members of Queen, said when he originally heard kind of Freddie presenting, he said, that's great. That's a hit. It was, in my head, a, a simpler entity then. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to have a wall of mock Gilbert and Sullivan stuff, you know, some of which was just written on the fly. <laughs> and Brian May said, we were all a bit mystified as to how we were going to link all these pieces together. <laughs> so Queen's album, which this is on A Night at the Opera, was recorded in 1975. They, of course, rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and they spent four months actually recording the album. Three of those weeks of time was spent on Bohemian Rhapsody. Not surprising at all. No. With a whole week devoted just to the operatic interlude. <laughs> the analog recording technology they had back then was, of course, nothing compared to what you can do today with Pro Tools and stuff. So by the time they were done, they had about 180 tracks that were layered together and bounced down into the submixes. And they say that you could actually see through the tape as it was worn so thin with overdubs. I hope that's like in a museum somewhere. <laughs> so Roy Thomas Baker, the producer, said that when they were in the studio, Mercury would come in proclaiming, Oh, I've got a few more Galileos, dear. So he went on to say that nobody really knew how it was going to sound as a whole six-minute song until it was put together. I was standing at the back of the control room and you just knew that you were listening for the first time to a big page in history. Something inside told me that this was a red-letter day, and it really was. So it basically got recorded in pieces, went into a black box, and came out like, ta-da! Oh, and, and everyone was like, months of no, but like, from concept to finished product, would you say like Freddie was the only person who knew how it was supposed to sound? I don't think he did. He like, figured not it wholly, out. Not, not completely. Like, but he was going on his He instinct. had like, yeah, he had just this dream, this idea. And there were no like record executives lording over him being like you need another galileo no 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 yeah. no they were of course trying to get them to edit it down so they could release it as a song and they actually did very briefly and it was only released in france <laughs> yeah and but it you know I, I it's terrible no one like you can't find it really <laughs> <laughs> So there is like a, a condensed version. There is like, it's like an illustrated. A, I think it's like three and a half minutes. Yeah. An illustrated classics version. Mm -hmm. If the French won't listen, we don't stand a chance anywhere else. You know, to tell you how much I don't like Charles Dickens. <laughs> when I was in high school, when we had to read Tale of Two Cities, I read the illustrated classic the night before the test. I never did any such thing. Did you do that too? Mm-hmm. Really? What mm -hmm. book? It may have been Tale of Two Cities. Uh, it's just, it's... <sighs> Dickens is hard. If, you, if it's not your favorite, it's really a slog. You know, I, I, I learned to do better. I read things like Mole Flanders in college. Oh, you I read Pamela. Kind of shit. Yeah, but that's just because there weren't illustrated classics for theirs. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, like, would I have done that if they existed? Yes. I did listen to the, like, LibriVox recording... Of a couple books. <laughs> but anyway, back to Queen. Much more important than Charles Dickens. Um, <laughs> true. <laughs> true enough. 
for the show. <laughs> for right now. So at the time, just like Phil Collins had to play on top of the pops, you know, every band in the UK played top of the pops. Right. You know, it was like playing American Bandstand. It's just so what you did. But you the, had to do. Did was it exciting or was it like going to tithe? No, they freaking hated it. Okay, no it was going to tithe. That's yeah. what it was. Okay. But you had to go get your name out there, you know, get your new song out there. And so they were very busy touring and they also knew how impossible it was going to be to play live. Right. So they actually made this new weird thing, a music video. This is why we have music videos. This is why we have music videos. So it was the first time that anyone had really made a music video that wasn't just a performance. It was actually like... A short film. A short film, exactly. And so it became a trend in the UK to do that. And so whenever MTV launched, no one had music videos in America... And all of these UK bands had videos because they were making them for Top of the Pops, etc. shows in the UK. And those were the only videos they had to play on so MTV. They popularized a shit ton of new wave music. And that's why we had a second British invasion. Because of Musical Queen. Invasion. <laughs> because of Queen. So it's Queen's fault for a flock of seagulls. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, also awesome bands like The Cure or whatever. Yeah. I remember when we were in college, your friend Josh, who was in bands and had long hair, because everyone has that friend, was in a band. He had long hair. And he was like, man, we're thinking about doing Bohemian Rhapsody live. And I was like, <laughs> Josh, Queen didn't do it live. They would do like, like chunks of it. And like, like they had backing tracks when they played it live. Like, come on, dude. They never did it live. <laughs> no. So, of course, it was wildly popular when it came out. It was Queen's first top 10 hit in the US and in the UK. Where Queen was already established, it was number one for nine weeks, which was a record at the time. And, as everyone knows, in 1992, the famous Wayne's World scene. Everyone knows the Wayne's World scene. If you don't know it, pause, pause go, go watch, watch it. it. Yeah, definitely. Good way to hear the song, too. If you're not familiar, you could do both at once. But that movie was so popular, and that scene was so popular, that the song went back up to number two in the U.S. In 92. 92. And what year was it released? 75. It had staying power, is what you're saying. Because <laughs> it's a classic. It's funny, I pulled up some original writing, like music critics, mm-hmm. just to see what they said about it. And this is my favorite. Alan Jones of The Melody Maker said, It's a superficially impressive pastiche of incongruous musical styles. <laughs> <laughs> and that Queen contrived to approximate the demented fury of the Balam Amateur Operatic Society performing the Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody is full of drama, passion, and romance and sounds rather like one of those mini opera affairs that Pete Townsend used to tack on to the end of Who albums. But then he concluded saying... The significance of this composition eludes me totally, though I must admit to finding it horrifically fascinating. <laughs> oh, God. It's likely to be a hit of enormous proportions despite its length. And that's the most honest thing ever written in the entire world. Yes. <laughs> this is fucking terrible. I love it. <laughs> it's going to be huge. I can't stop listening but that is some of the charm of it is like you have you have no idea where the song's going and you have no idea what it's about galileo galileo figaro 
Beelzebub has a devil. It's got all these crazy words that are always Mm -hmm. missung Mm -hmm. by your friend in the car as they're head about to headbang. Yeah. As they're anticipating that moment, their dopamine is surging. Do you remember that time (laughs) we were coming back from the Tom Petty concert? Yes. With your sister and her boyfriend. Yes. In your dad's coupe. Oh, we were jammed in there, yeah. Yeah. And I was in the back seat with them, and we were flipping the radio stations, and we landed on Bohemian Rhapsody. Of course. Or maybe, no, it was a CD. It was a CD is what it was. Like, right as it was about to go into the, like, so you think you, you know, like, the headbang section. From, oh, God, I remember uh, that. Like, we went over the railroad tracks, and it made the CD skip, and it, like, stopped, and we were all like, ah! was the worst thing ever like it was it was because we were waiting for it and it didn't happen we were all singing along so happy and excited and we were robbed of that moment <laughs> and got it one second later so this song actually has tons of urban legends about around what it is about give me the craziest up front okay one fun one that i saw was that it's the hero's journey okay which familiar. amazingly we have not done an episode on Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. One day. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> one day. I pulled up some Reddit. Yeah. Apparently we're gonna do that more now. <laughs> so one person started translating Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is about the birth, life, and death of someone on death row. Okay, yeah. Fine. Not a very deep reading. Exactly. Where said we talked about it in my history class, and a kid had this whole story about a soldier who kills someone and tells his mother in a letter and it gets captured by the enemy, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, he tells us that he looked it up and that Queen confirmed the story. Okay. I think he had a Ouija board that was malfunctioning. <laughs> Must have. It even spelled out blah, blah, blah. First of all, Queen has never confirmed any story, right? Never. Okay. So that is a big important thing is that no one knows what it's about. They don't know what it's about. No, like Brian May, Roger Taylor, they're just like, if we knew, we wouldn't tell you, but we don't know. <laughs> and Freddie Mercury was a big fan of his privacy and also of kind of building up an air of mystery about himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he would never tell, but we'll get there. So there's some weird words in the song. Right. Just a few fun definitions. So a Scaramucci is a stock clown character from the Italian comedies. And wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, is that really true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a Scaramucci. <laughs> like the person who was the press secretary. I'm sorry. For like six days. The communications director of the White House for 11 days or something. Yeah. That's His name means stock character clown. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to enjoy that over here for a few minutes, which you may continue. But he was known for like boasting and cowardice, and he would often create mischief that others would have to suffer for. Okay. Galileo could be Galileo. Figaro is a principal character in The Barber of Seville and all of the sequels. Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. Exactly. Of course, operas made from them by, you know, Rossini, Mozart, etc. He's a clever liar, moral and yet scrupulous, good-humored, helpful, brave, though somewhat embittered and cynical. As he says in The Barber of Seville, I must force myself to laugh at everything Lest I be obliged to weep. Okay. Interesting. Beelzebub. Demon. Demon. Leader of the demon. Satan. Depending on who you ask. Okay. Um, Bismillah 
interestingly enough, is Arabic. And it is drawn from a noun from the Quran, meaning in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful. And it's kind of used as like a blessing. Oh, okay. Fandango is a two-person dance mm-hmm. that slowly increases in tempo. And um, so and the name is most likely derived from Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody. Okay. Where he did the, all these pieces of music based on Hungarian folklore. Fun. Yeah. So my favorite theory about what this song is like based on or about is that it's based on a book called The Stranger by Albert Camus. Oh, yes. You've read this. I've read that. I do. I love Albert Camus. So he is an existential writer Mm -hmm. who liked to talk about the absurd. Yes. Existential absurdist French author. Yes. Okay. And yet France got the condensed version of the song. He wasn't from France. He was French, but he lived in Algeria. I'm pretty sure. So the book is about, it's a a little tiny like novella almost. It's a small book. But it's about Marsalt, who is a citizen of France who lives in North Africa. And the book starts with a famous line that just sets up your existential novel. Mother died today. Or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. I got a telegram from the home. Mother deceased. Funeral tomorrow. Faithfully yours. That doesn't mean anything. Maybe it was yesterday. <laughs> Why is this a Wes Anderson movie in my head? <laughs> it could so be. <laughs> Let's make it fun and existential. So in the book, his mother, who'd been living in a home, dies. And he just doesn't care. He shows no grief. He doesn't cry at his mother's funeral. And he refuses to see the body. Okay. Because the world is meaningless. Right. So he eventually befriends Raymond, who's this kind of unsavory character, his neighbor, and helps him to exact revenge on his girlfriend, whom Raymond has accused of infidelity and beats after she slaps him. And this is after he sets her up. (laughs) So the woman's Arab brother, he's called the Arab in the book, and a friend then encounter Raymond at the beach. And in an ensuing fight, Raymond is stabbed. So our main character returns to the beach and shoots the brother dead. Apparently not out of revenge, though, but simply due to the disorienting heat and annoying brightness of the sun as it reflects off a knife carried by the Arab. This is absurd. Exactly. Okay. So the story is divided into two parts. That's part one, and then... Oh, it's all in first-person narrative, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after the murder is part two, and that's when he's in jail, and he's on trial, and he is contemplating the universe. (laughs) So the prosecutor cannot understand Mossad's monstrous indifference to his mother's death. His atheism is condemned by the crucifix-waving judge who brands him Monsieur Antichrist. Oh, no! And eventually he's convicted for the murder... But the true offense seems to be his inability to express emotion, especially remorse, and to conform to our conventional social and moral norms. Right. Well, so Gumi said, I summarized The Stranger a long time ago with the remark I admit was highly paradoxical. In our society, any man who does not weep at his mother's funeral runs the risk of being sentenced to death. I only meant that the hero of my book is condemned because he does not play the game. Ugh. Ugh. Think about that for a second. Just chew on it. 
I think this cheesecake has gone bad. <laughs> this cheesecake is bad. Hey, we know we're not happy here. Yeah. Okay. So, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> well, so give me some glitter, goddammit. Well, so the end of the book, he is <laughs> angry, mad about the meaninglessness of life in the face of eventual death and the way people wrongly try to judge others. And after just releasing all of his anger, the senselessness of life, he has this like cathartic calm and satisfaction with his life that ironically nullifies all of his previous indifference. The book ends, As if that blind rage had washed me clean, rid of hope for the first time, in that night, alive with signs and stars, I opened myself to the gentle indifference of the world, finding it so much like myself, so like a brother, really. I felt that I had been happy, and that I was happy again. For everything to be consummated, for me to feel less alone, I had only to wish that there be a large crowd of spectators the day of my execution, and that they greet me with cries of hate. So it's a little existential. Yeah, you mentioned that. You mentioned the existential nature of it. But... There's a lot of things that tie together. Okay. It's like mother reference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Killed a man. Yeah. He is angry, mm-hmm. scared. Mm-hmm. But then at the end. Nothing really matters to me. Exactly. It is very existential when you look at it. I don't want it to be existential. I don't <laughs> want it to be a great eyeball wandering the hillside or whatever Ralph Waldo Emerson said. Want it to be a narrative. <laughs> it is a narrative. It's not a narrative. That's an absurdist existential comment on the meaninglessness of life and how we can only find justification for our existence and other people's misunderstanding of it. Right. Ugh. <laughs> but so, I hate fiction. I mean, there are some serious ties. Yeah, I see it. I Definitely see it. is. And of course, like I said, nothing's been confirmed. It's all conjecture. I like conjecture. That's my favorite one, of course, because I love Camus. But anyway. Sorry, you love Camus. (laughs) I'm sorry your life is so so hard. So hard. So another interesting thing is that people tie to that that Beelzebub. Yes, right? The devil for a son for me. Sorry we're singing so much on this episode. It's kind of impossible not to. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. So... One person, Slim Shadows, on Reddit said, I see a little silhouette of a man. Could either be them anticipating him or his first glimpse into hell. He continues to see thunderbolts and lightning, which terrify him as he sees more of what hell has in store for him. Spare him his life from this monstrosity. Could be part of his begging to be spared from hell or an external third source, i.e. the listener or writer siding with him. One of the most convincing things for me about it Involving supernaturality. Ooh, some mortification. Here's the calling of Smilia, or by Allah let me go. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) This part is conjecture, but I believe that the guitar picking up with the second cello is him trying to escape hell and get to heaven. I wish he had a stairway. A stairway to heaven? (laughs) So, while I think that's ridiculous, there is an interesting thing. Uh Uh-huh. And that is that Whenever Queen's Greatest Hits was released in Iran, yeah, once they started allowing Western music, wasn't in, it like the first rock CD? It or? was one of the first. Yeah. It was one of the. This was in two thousand. It included a little booklet called "March of the Black Queen," 
and included biography of the band, complete lyrics with Persian translation, and it says that Queen states that Bohemian Rhapsody is about a young man who has accidentally killed someone and, like Faust, sold his soul to the devil. On the night before his execution, he calls for God, and with the help of angels, regains his soul from the devil. Did Queen say that? No. Okay. <laughs> so it's Faust. That's what they say. Faust and Mephistopheles. Yeah. I can see uh, that. Yeah, it's not crazy. It's I mean, not that crazy. is like, yeah, sure, opera. That's the thing. But it's it's not about that. You know, just like anyone that's writing music, you, you put some of yourself into it. Hopefully. Hopefully so. So, Freddie Mercury, mm-hmm. our Persian peacock. Yes, a proud Persian peacock. That's so how he referenced himself. Was born uh, Farouk Belisara in the British Protectorate of the Sultanate of Zanzibar. Which, my God, Sounds that cool. name, right? Which is, in East Africa, it's now part of Tanzania. But he went to boarding school in India, and he eventually ended up in Middlesex after the family's homeland was consumed in revolution in 1964. Okay. So his family was Pasis, and they practiced Zoroastrianism. Interesting. Right? So following graduation, Mercury did join a series of bands, and he kind of made money by selling old clothes in the Kensington market uh, with his girlfriend, Mary Austin. Now, in 1970, he finally joined up with Brian May and Roger Taylor, and eventually... John Deacon joined on, and they formed... Queen! Queen! Yay, Queen! So about the band's name, one of the band members said, It's very regal, obviously, and it sounds splendid. It's a strong name, very universal and immediate. I was certainly aware of the gay connotations, but that was just one facet of it. <laughs> Which is like, could explain everything. Everything! Like, it could be used for just like everything. It's just a facet. And Freddie Mercury said, We... Or the Cecil B. DeMille of rock and roll. <laughs> Always wanting to do things bigger and better. Yeah, fair. So, you know, he was one of those rising stars of the glam rock and always had the costumes and the big show pieces and things like that. He did things like riding a Darth Vader into a show for the encore. Like he would mount a man dressed as Darth Vader yes. on his shoulders and ride him in. Quite the showman, dear Freddie. David Bowie said, of all the more... Theatrical rock performers, Freddie took it further than the rest. He took it over the edge. And of course, I always admired a man who wears tights. <laughs> I only saw him in concert once, and as they say, he was definitely a man who could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. So of course, with all that, there was always rumors, is he gay? And at one time, he was at a concert, and he was heckled. No! And this is at Manchester's Free Trade Hall. And someone yelled out, you fucking poof! Was poof? Is poof... Is poof a pejorative term for a gay man? Yeah. You never know. The British are so literal. <laughs> so in response, Freddie Mercury demanded that a spotlight be put on the heckler. <laughs> like in the air tonight. Yeah, it's like in the fake story. <laughs> and he looked him in the eye and I just would kill to be there and say, say that again, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie. But he was big into the rock and roll lifestyle. He threw a huge party in 1978 at the Fairmont Hotel in New Orleans called Saturday Night in Sodom. Fun. Where guests were greeted by dwarves serving Bolivian cocaine from trays strapped to their heads. Shut up. And the entertainment included nude models wrestling in huge baths of uncooked liver. Ah. 
trans strippers, fire eaters, and prostitutes in the bathrooms. Yeah, that's pretty pretty fucking rock and roll. <laughs> and of course, he had his monumental performance in 1985 at Live Aid, mm-hmm. which has gone down history as one of the greatest rock performances ever. So, with all that being said, what the hell is the song about, Jacob? Like I said, no one knows. The band is very tight-lipped about it. They say, even if they did, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't tell. tell. So Brian May said, what is Bohemian Rhapsody about? Well, I don't think we'll ever know. And if I knew, I probably wouldn't want to tell you anyway. Because I certainly don't tell people what my songs are about. I find that it destroys them in a way. Because the great thing about a great song is that you relate it to your own personal experience in your own life. I think that Freddie was certainly battling with problems in his personal life, which he might have decided to put into the song himself. He was certainly looking at recreating himself, but I don't think at that point in time it was the best thing to do, so he actually decided to do it later. I think it's best to leave it with a question mark in the air. Of course, the question mark. But we won't leave it with a question mark. That's not how we do. So, you know, he mentions he wanted to recreate himself, but it wasn't at the right time. Okay. And he did that later. So there's a lot of conjecture that it's about him. A lot of people say coming out, but I like to think of it more of as him dealing with his sexuality. Yeah. Internally. like Right. So Leslie Ann Jones, who wrote a biography on Mercury, asked him about it. Mm-hmm. And she said, Mercury admitted only that it was about relationships. She said, in 1986, I found myself in a Budapest hotel suite. With Freddie Mercury during Queen's A Kind of Magic World Tour. Having his undivided attention for a few moments, I put to him, not for the first time, my theories about these characters. Hmm. Scaramucci, I ventured, had to be Freddie himself, with a penchant for the tears of a clown motif. Galileo, the astronomer, must be the astrophysicist Brian May, which the guitarist does have a PhD in astrophysics. Beazelbub must be Roger Taylor, the band's wildest party animal, while Figaro was perhaps not the operatic character at all, but the tuxedo kitten in Walt Disney's 1940 animated classic Pinocchio, a dead ringer for pussycat John Deacon. And of course, Freddy was a huge fan of cats and dedicated one of his solo albums to his cats. (laughs) FYI. (laughs) She said, Freddy's face was a picture. He didn't say a word. He looked even more perplexed when I asked him about the song's inspiration. I suggested in so many words that it was, in fact, a thickly disguised confession about his sexual orientation. Freddy had never been at liberty to live a publicly flamboyant lifestyle because his family was very strict to the religious Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to hurt them. So not only would this have offended his parents, but their religion does not even recognize homosexuality. So, of course, he, he just didn't answer. <laughs> He's like, that's interesting. <laughs> he moved on. Say that again, darling. Exactly. <laughs> so he was never able to live openly, and he shared his life for seven years with a devoted girlfriend, Mary Austin, before admitting to her that he thought he might be bisexual. And she said she responded, no, Freddie, I think you're gay. And nothing else was said. We just hugged. From then on, apart from a brief, intense affair with the late German actress, Barbara Valentine, maybe. That's debated. Didn't she, like, claim she had his babies and stuff? Yeah, like, it's, it's a tabloidy uh, that's thing. That's I was, like, debated. He pretty much strictly had sexual relations with men. I think nowadays, we would, he would be queer. Yeah. Which I'm sure people said he was queer. <laughs> But in a different way. <laughs> but he would have owned the label, is what you're exactly. saying. Like, like, I think that's where he would have lived in our current rainbow. Spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because he absolutely loved Mary Austin. So all my lovers asked me why they couldn't replace Mary, but it's simply impossible. The only friend I've got is Mary, and I don't want anybody else. To me, she was my common-law wife. To me, it was a marriage. We believe in each other, and that's enough for me. So he was emotionally intimate with her. Like, that was honest and true, and that was a real thing. It wasn't just for appearances or anything like that. Yeah, no, definitely not. Definitely not. They stayed friends forever for until he didn't died. he like leave everything to her he did yeah he left his huge estate to her yeah he like gives some money to some of the people that worked for him some money to his mom mm-hmm. his family left her the big old house and she still lives there cool with her family because she went on and got married she went and got children. married had kids normal heteronormative thing <laughs> but brian may said about his sexuality i don't think even he was fully cognizant in the beginning you're talking to someone who shared rooms with fred on the first couple of tours, so I knew him pretty well. I knew a lot of his girlfriends, and he certainly didn't have boyfriends in those days, that's for sure. I think there was a slight suspicion, but it never occurred to me, that he was gay. And Mercury really did keep to himself. He liked that sense of mystery, like I was saying. But Brian May said, you know, things did change. You know, suddenly it went from being, quote, hot chicks to hot men. <laughs> so it didn't matter to us, why should it? But Freddie had this habit of saying, well, I suppose you realize this, that, or the other, <laughs> in a very offhand way. And he did say at some point, I suppose you realize I've changed in my private life. That is so, I know he's not, but that is such a British way to come out. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1987, he did test positive for HIV, but he continued that air of mystery. He said, he told them, I suppose you realize that I'm dealing with that illness to his band. So I suppose you realize is code for like, listen up, I got some shit to say and I'm only going to say it once. <laughs> I guess so. And so he never came out publicly that he was HIV positive. Okay. During this time period, he, you know, they stopped touring, but they continued to record. He wanted to record as much as he could. I understand that. Impulse. Yeah. Like that makes total sense. Like he was like, I'm just going to keep recording. He's like, y'all, I want y'all to finish when I'm gone. Okay. He told him. I want you to finish these songs. And Roger Taylor said that about Mercury's decision to keep his battle with AIDS private, that he didn't want to be looked at as an object of pity and curiosity. And he didn't want circling vultures over his head. I'm sure that in that time, people would have had such a strong reaction to such a public figure. I mean... No, that's very true. And that's why he kind of gets some slack about it. Like, just posthumously. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he should have come out sooner. He should have come out sooner. Drawn more attention to... Exactly. But even with all that, he did draw attention to the problem. Yeah. On November 23rd of 1991, he released a statement. I felt it correct to keep this information private to date in order to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has now come for my friend and fans around the world to know the truth. And I hope that everyone will join with me, my doctors, and all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. And he died the next day. He was 45 years old. So he was the first major rock star to die of AIDS. One of the first big public figures. Like that was still popular in the current generation. Because like, I think Rock Hudson may have died before him. Right. But there weren't a bunch of young people that were right. like watching all Rock Hudson movies. Yeah. Like, but you know, the band went on to form the Mercury Phoenix Trust. Did a tribute concert for AIDS awareness in 1992. And raised millions of dollars millions and millions of dollars and the broadcast of that concert was estimated viewing of one billion people 
So Leslie and Joan spoke to Jim Hutton after Freddie's death. Who is Jim Hutton? So he is his kind of partner that he'd been with throughout this kind of crisis. He said Freddie was never going to admit it publicly, of course, because he always had to carry on the charade about being straight for his family. But we did discuss it on numerous occasions. Bohemian Rhapsody was Freddie's confessional. It was about how different his life could have been and how much happier he might have been had he just been able to be himself. The whole of his life, the world, heard this song as a masterpiece of imagination, a great command of musical styles. It was this remarkable tapestry. It was so intricate and had so many layers. But the message, if hidden, was simple. Just as the management, the band, all of us in his life never admitted that Freddie was even ill, not until the day before he died, because it was his business. He felt the same about his song. He didn't reveal what it was all about because he couldn't be bothered. He'd said all that he was ever going to say about it, which wasn't very much. So if it is a confessional, if it's him grappling with his sexuality, Mm -hmm. is the man he's killing himself? That's what Tim Rice says. So Tim Rice, you know, the songwriter, that's what he thinks. Because they were friends. They worked together. And he thinks that that's what the reference is. Like, Mama just killed a man, like, and his mother, concerned about his mother knowing. Uh-huh. And, you know, killing that old self. Oh, no. I think it's his true self. I think that entire song is about how nothing matters because he can't be himself. Oh, like, but I meant, like, saying that he wanted to. Yeah. Or maybe it's about a man on death row. <laughs> Could be. But, you know, I mean, so many of uh, Freddie Mercury's songs... You can look at and see his kind of inner turmoil. Uh, somebody to Love is one of the saddest songs. Find me somebody to yeah, love. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. It's so sad. Each morning I get up, I die a little, can barely stand on my feet. Yeah, there's some, so many songs where you can just see there's a battle, but you know, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter in the long run because, I mean, like he was saying, Freddie would want you to kind of be able to project yourself yourself onto it and use it in whatever way you need to if you need to deal with something i'm sure you realize that he's one of the greatest artists that's ever recorded very true and freddie Mercury really just embraced this kind of change in musical style and just would throw anything in there your opera hard rock everything pop. pop everything rockabilly yeah rockabilly for sure i mean just song um, that was the only song you play guitar on crazy little thing called love yeah and if you watch him play it like it's an ode to elvis and he like takes like the little elvis stance right oh he's so cute but songs have really changed a lot over the last 70 years okay so one researcher looked at top 100 songs from 1960 all the way up to current day. Okay. And there's that over the last five decades, emotional cues in music, tempo, and the mode of the song of the key, minor or major, have changed a lot. So over the last few decades, popular songs have switched from major to minor keys. In the 60s, 85% of the songs were written in a major key, compared with only about 40% of them now. So the sound has shifted from bright and happy to more complicated. (laughs) As well as America's popular songs have become slower and longer 
and more complicated and introspective lyrics. Versus our teenage music from the 50s and 60s. So rock and roll. Rock and roll. It was here to stay. But the reason it existed, the genesis of rock music, was post-World War II baby boom kids growing up and having a little walking around money. A little extra time. A little little extra time, a little extra cash. So the concept of a teenager was relatively new. It appeared in print in 1941 in Popular Science for the first time. So there have only been teenagers among us since 1941. We're studying these teen-agers. Yes, it had a hyphen. And so a lot of what I'm going to tell you about the history of rock and roll comes from an excellent piece written for Rolling Stone by Robert Palmer. And it's called The 50s, A Decade of Music That Changed the World. And it's true. So they asked Fats Domino where rock and roll came from. And he said, in typical Fats Domino fashion, rock and roll's nothing but rhythm and blues. And we've been playing it for years down in New Orleans. (laughs) I am fully support the idea of putting a statue of Fats Domino in New Orleans instead of General Lee. Well, General Lee's gone. That's already empty now. One of the people they talked about putting is Fats. Fats And I love that idea. And I also love that it would then be called Domino Circle, which just has such a great ring to it. Or Fat Circle. Yeah. Given New Orleans history with like butchering the names of things, that's probably what would happen. (laughs) So Palmer concedes that this is a pretty valid observation. Right. R&B was this weird catch-all. And it encompassed everything from like Kansas City Swing to New York Street Corner vocal groups to Delta and Chicago blues. It just kind of meant black music is what it kind of meant. Right. And this was like, as the story goes, white people stealing black people music. Basically. Well, that's not a story. <laughs> we'll it's get there. only partially true. So as far as Fats Domino was concerned, rock and roll was simply a new marketing strategy for the style of music that he'd been recording since 1949. But it wasn't just a continuation of the same thing. There were new elements being injected into the bloodstream of this new phenomenon. Exactly. It is a true melting pot. There was something new that Chuck Berry was doing. Oh, that that thing he heard on the phone. Right. Marty McFly. Yeah. From the future. His, his cousin called Because white him. people invented rock and roll. Jesus Christ. Uh, do you have to take that too, Marty? No. That's my biggest gripe with Back to the Future. I never realized that. It's all Huey Lewis's fault. Do you like... <laughs> do you like Huey Lewis? <laughs> They're a little black for me. It's also racist. Oh Stop. Zell Circle. Yeah. We have to go back, Jacob. So Chuck Berry is a black artist who is basically responsible for creating rock and roll <laughs> just he brought that electric guitar sound he up front. did a lot of changing of music and changing expectations and just riffing livening it up riffing was a huge thing that he brought so he created a true fusion of like hillbilly music blues swing jazz and he really concentrated on the subject matter of things that would be relevant to the life of teenagers. Was a teenage wedding. The old folks wish them well. That's an amazing song. <sighs> it's amazing. an amazing song. Palmer writes, Certainly mainstream popular music had never seen a performer whose vocal delivery, stage moves, and seamless integration of influences as diverse as down-home blues, 
white Pentecostalism and hit parade crooning remotely resembled Elvis Presley's, who was also very responsible in the early genesis of rock and roll. And where outside the wildest, most Dionysian black storefront churches, had anyone ever seen anything like Little Richard? No. <laughs> no is the answer. Still have. <laughs> Maybe Freddie. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so these artists were doing something new. Artists like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley. This is new. And there's a man behind the curtain. There are several men behind the curtain. Several men. Several men behind the curtain. But one of the men behind the curtain is... Sam Phillips. Sam Phillips. Sam Phillips. And he's who brought that hillbilly music and mixed it in. Yes. So he was one of the pillars of the foundations of rock and roll. He owned Sun Records in Tennessee. And his motto was, we record anything, anywhere, anytime. Okay. And, like he, would, he opened his studio to people. He would let people come in and record things and just kind of... You know, he was recording black artists, he was recording white artists, he was just anybody that wanted to come in and put something down, he would record it, because you never knew when somebody was going to walk in that could change the face of music as we know it. Like Johnny Cash. Or Elvis Presley. That guy. He literally walked in to record, like, a, a record. For his mom. For his mother's birthday. Yeah. And that's how he was discovered. So, this practice of having the open door policy wasn't all bad. He, um discovered air quotes elvis jerry lee lewis carl perkins carl perkins this is my jam by the way like this is where i live <laughs> this is this is the music i know johnny cash etc etc now he said that rock music wasn't really that much of a structural change he said it wasn't a new creature but there was novelty in it and there were two things that he believed made it successful firstly he said that the popular music specifically addressed the concerns of teenagers and there had been like kid records and adult records but never anything for those in between so that was new they were tapping this market a new market totally that did not exist before not really and then he also believed that rock and roll enabled quote marginal americans such as poor white sharecroppers and black ghetto youth, and not coincidentally storefront record label operators in out-of-the-way places like Memphis, the opportunity to express themselves freely. Not as purveyors of rhythm and blues or country and western, where the audiences were very limited, where they were aiming at those niche markets. But this opened a door to crossovers, it opened a door to new audiences. It was a genius business model. And this kind of democratized the record industry. Not like what we have now, which is crazy. Like self-publishing, self-recording, that was still not a thing. But you had little uh, scrappy upstarts like Sun Studios or Chess Records yes. or <laughs> uh, Specialty. And they were invading the top of the charge, which had been solely under the ownership of big record executives. Uh, yep. So Chess Records was another very important and influential record company recording around the same time. In Chicago, there were two brothers named Phil and Leonard Chess who took the best black bluesmen performing at their nightclub and began recording them on the Chess label. Right, and so where you had 
Sun Records, which was taking this kind of white hillbilly guys that were playing the this rhythm and blues field of things. Chess Records was taking the black musicians. And so in Chicago, you had a lot of people coming there from the South. From the so Delta. from Louisiana yeah. and Mississippi, especially. Because you had the city of New Orleans, the train, that went up to Chicago. And so they would leave seeking their fortune. And so you had people like Muddy Waters. Muddy you had Waters. people like Buddy Guy. You know, all going up to Chicago and playing in little nightclubs. And so you even got like an area of Chicago that was known as Little Mississippi. <laughs> so they were looking for somebody to market as a rock and roll act. You know, break out of that rhythm and blues label yeah. and have more of that crossover appeal. Right, not a race record. Right. Which is what had been being made for the last 30, 40 years. And selling specifically in black music stores to black people. Right. And by the way, if you find a box of those in your grandmama's you attic, rich. you rich. You are <laughs> you rich, rich now. So they were looking for this crossover act. And so they went to Muddy Waters. And they're like, Muddy, my buddy. Hoochie Gucci man. You know anybody. And he's like, I know this fellow named Chuck. Chuck. And so they are introduced to Chuck Berry, who shows them his song, Ida Red. Not catchy. Yeah, I don't know. They change it to Maybelline. Ah, okay. (laughs) Maybelline. That song? That song. So, Maybelline becomes massively popular. Now, before becoming a rock star, Chuck Berry had studied hairdressing and cosmetology at St. Louis Night School. Yeah, I did not know that. That's amazing. I love it. I wish he did my hair at some point in my life. Like, I just feel like that would be the best story. (laughs) Did he do Little Richard's hair? No, no one did it. Because maybe he was not as good as I thought. (laughs) Palmer writes, The majors, meaning the large record executives, were caught napping by an unholy coalition of Southern renegade radio engineers like Phillips, Jewish immigrant merchants, the Chess Brothers, and black ex-swing band musicians and raving hillbilly wild men. (laughs) My writing, not Palmer's. Don't want to imply he wrote this. So previously, these kinds of operations had been specialty markets with limited audiences, but they were beginning to like wave at each other across a lunch counter. Like they really were like beginning to notice each other and see more alike than different. And in this way, rock and roll is absolutely instrumental in spreading the idea of civil rights before the movement began and like making people more receptive to it. And it's very important that there are black rock stars and there are white rock stars. The that crack is crack in the door. So key. Because now I feel like rock has turned into white boy music and you have rap and hip hop yeah. that like really express the African American identity of today. But at this point, it is just young people music. Right, right. And so this is creating this weird kind of playing field. Yeah. I feel like that's that's referencing pop you know like don't write to us and be like oh this obscure indie band has this and it's like like pop rock like Nickelback. No, i mean what plays on the radio like nickelback <laughs> like nickelback <Ugh. laughs> cheesecake is bad so meanwhile many blacks growing up in isolated pockets of the rural south listened to and were influenced by country music on the radio like the grand Ole opry from nashville and they brought this into their own musical expression. Right, and that's why Ray Charles has the album 
modern sounds and country, country and western, western music. music. Yes. And you can see, like, in the movie, you know, Jamie Foxx, when he go- says he wants to do it, everyone's like, what? You sure? You sure? You like country music? He's like, yeah, I like it, but they're doing it wrong, <laughs> which is an like, accurate statement. <laughs> let me show you how to do it. And then he did it amazingly. And also, like, I've thought about this this week as I've been reading. And Ray Charles and Willie Nelson really should have sang together more. Oh, Seven Spanish Angels is one of the most beautiful songs it ever recorded. Is stop and go listen to that. I am going to make a playlist for this episode. Yes. And I highly encourage you to check it out. We'll post it on social media and then also on the website. But they're like the only two singers I know that take the same beat between like phrases. <laughs> you mean randomly? Yeah, okay. but they seem to sync up. It's weird. I remember seeing an interview once and someone asked Cheryl Crow what it was like to sing with Willie Nelson. <laughs> and she was just like, basically, like, guessing. It's impossible. It's guessing. So people like Phillips realized that white kids had been seeking out race records. And so they injected some of that sound into what he was recording with his artist's son. However, there were some record executives who just decided instead of having black artists sing their own songs, they would just re-record them with white people. Oh, fun. How'd that go? It did not work well. Yeah. Like they would chart below the black artist. (laughs) It was very short-lived, thankfully. So for example, like Pat Boone covered Tootie Fruity. No one should cover (laughs) Tootie Fruity. (laughs) Especially not Pat Boone. It didn't do well. God. I know. So one of the first like real like rock and roll hits like recorded for the purposes of being released as a standalone record in that style was rock around the clock like happy days yes well that was the perfect song for the intro exactly it was recorded by bill haley and the comets which kudos on your name sir it's kitschy it's it's i good. like it but he'll, bill haley was homely <laughs> that was the problem with bill Haley. He was not the stud. He was not teen idol material. He was not going to be in Tiger Beat. No. Neither was Pat Bear. But never fear. Elvis had entered the building. He was there at Sun Records. He entered the scene in summer of 1953. He had previously been a truck driver. I can never imagine Elvis having been anything other than Elvis. It is very hard for me to put him in a life before he was the king of rock and roll. But apparently, that was the case. So, Haley introduced the rock and roll idea. Elvis capitalized on the teen idol phenomena. My mother was obsessed with Elvis Presley as a young girl. Like, she went after my dad at age 15 or whatever because she thought he looked like Elvis. And to be fair, he kind of did. It's like a red Elvis. Like a red Elvis. (laughs) Now, this new genre of music were it to be marketed, was going to need a name. Right. We were going to need to call it something. But R&B, what? rhythm and blues, could have applied, because it covered everything, right? Way too, way too black. But it was basically what stood in for race records. Yeah. Like, it was, like, the chart in Billboard that was rhythm and blues really was just the race records, as far as the executives were concerned. Right. Yeah, they weren't called race records. I, mean, I was, like, in the 30s in New Orleans. <laughs> this DJ... Yeah. This disc jockey. What's that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) A man who played music on the radio. Why is he called a disc? What's a disc? (laughs) Like a a record. Ah. I guess. 
right? Like a CD. Like a CD. Uh, no, okay. not like a CD. <laughs> like a CD, but vinyl. Okay. And bigger. Bigger? bigger. How'd you put it in your car? You didn't put it in your car. You were at the mercy of the DJ in your car. That's an important point. Right. You didn't have portable music. If you were listening to anything in your car, you were listening to the radio. radio. Or the wind. Yes. <laughs> so, Alan Freed is this guy's name. And he said to have coined the term rock and roll while he was working as a disc jockey Mm. in the city of Cleveland, which is why the only thing they have going for themselves is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. And and of course, there's the episode of Quantum Leap. Where he is Alan Freed. He's, yeah, basically. Do, 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 do. (laughs) You know how I feel about Quantum Leap. It's got to be good. So he worked in Cleveland in the beginning, but then he went on to work in New York City at a much larger radio station. And he made that move in 54. Privately, Freed and his cohort were very amused by the idea that the term rock and roll had taken hold in the way it had because it was known to them that it was a black slang term for sex. Interestingly, so was jazz. Yes, it was. jazz meant... So, to stup. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I guess if you're the chess brothers. <laughs> and jazz originally came about in the brothels of Storyville in New Orleans. Jolly Roll Morton, all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think that the term came from to jazz. I mean, that makes sense. Me it's like to, the, you know, the old in and out. The old in and out. Yes. Who are you? <laughs> What didn't you just say? Anyway. I was trying not to say fuck, okay? (laughs) That's our one. PG-13. I think we've already said it several times. Whatever. But it had been used in songs dating back to like 1922 when a blues singer named Trixie Smith recorded a song with a lyric, My man rocks me with one steady roll. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Now, the kids got it. The disc jockeys got it. The artists got it. You know who didn't get it? Those adults. As stupid adults. But it was the first time that there had been like this national shorthand teen language that John Hughes would recreate years later. And create. Yes. He created a lot of that slang. Which is so interesting. And he just made it up. So it wouldn't sound dated. Exactly. And then so it was picked smart. Up. But this is important too. It was like a secret handshake for this new generation. Like it was something they had, they shared. It's cool. It was cool. It was something their parents didn't get. Really creating the idea of an extended adolescence for the first time in American history. Now, Freed would also have these big concerts called the Moondog Coronation Ball. And these started back in 1952 in Cleveland. But a lot of the acts that performed there were launched into prominence on a national level. And he would play the... Concerts live on the radio sometimes. There are a few important features of rock and roll that come from all over, uh, one of which is the, quote, Bo Diddley beat. And that's that kind of like staccato, like hitting the chords. Bo Diddley is actually a performer's name. Yes. Because it sounds like it, it could be like a Bo Diddley beat. Like, I don't know. Yes, like, right? <laughs> like a mbop. But um, yes, that's a performer's name. It's a beat he popularized. And it's said to have had roots in afro-caribbean derivation to me it just sounds like new orleans (laughs) but that's the same thing often called the most northern caribbean city yeah or the only european city in the united states 
And the bass lines that were used were largely based on Fats Domino's Blue Monday. This is the most well-treaded, retreaded, <laughs> recycled bass line in 50s rock and roll. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. You can hear it all over the place. And then in a lot of early rock songs, you have a saxophone solo standing in for where the electric guitar solo is going to go when they figure that whole thing right, out. Right, because guys like Buddy Holly... Eddie Cochran, they brought the guitar solo in there. People like Chuck Berry. I mean, he really, really popularized it. Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins Cadillac, song by Drive by Chuckers. Go listen to it. Yeah, it's so good. And then people like that from Texas area did bring in like Tejano music too. And that's an important component that is never talked about. Richie Valens. Richie Valens. I had such a crush on... The guy that played him in the movie, La Bamba. It's the guy from Law and Order. Yes, whose name I can't think of. Is it uh, Lou Diamond Phillips? Oh, no, it's not, that's not Law and Order. Yeah, he's on Law and Order. Oh, he is? Yeah, he's in a couple of seasons of SVU. <laughs> okay. But you had this introduction of people like Elvis and Chuck Berry and Little Richard, who became this, like, template for, like, all these, like, gender-bending, super-eccentric Freddie Mercury's that would follow. Like, yeah, I mean, you can Bowie trace and, yeah. that back to him. And then you have these friendly, like, reliable... Sweethearts. Sweethearts, like Fats Domino, who could take anything and make it radio-friendly. Like, Fats Domino had more hits than anyone but Elvis. But no one ever talks about him in context of rock and roll because he's from New Orleans and New Orleans is jazz. Right. Outside of New Orleans. <laughs> right. And then you have people like Jerry Lee Lewis, who serve as like this blueprint for the Keith Moons of the world. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, this kind of crazy wild man all over the place. Like, if he could have smashed a piano on stage, he would have. <laughs> I mean, basically try. And then you have the Buddy Holly and the Crickets, who kind of serve as this like template for the Beatles, even. You know, these harmony infused, like all male groups. You know. The Beatles was an option for their name. Like it was on the short list. They yeah. were either going to be the Beatles. They were going to be some kind of bug. A bug. And they decided that crickets are more musical than Beatles. I think so. But Beatles, they were going to spell it right. <laughs> they didn't want like an O-Neater's wonder situation. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have people like Sam Cooke and Ray Charles and a young James Brown who had this like showmanship based on their experiences in like charismatic Christian churches. <laughs> Who really brought the, like, religiosity, this church of rock and roll feel into a concert. And then you have people like Eddie Cochran, who was this super good-looking heartthrob and was also very intelligent and very... He had a very James Dean look to him. Yeah. Had that hair and the... But kind of made the the moody rocker. You know, like later you'd have Jeff Buckley's and, you know, even Robert Plant's. Like Mm -hmm. super intelligent musically, super on the girls' walls and posters. (laughs) So there were some sub-genres within 50s music. There was like the doo-wop sub-genre. And this includes like barbershop harmony. And this was taken from like gospel groups in the 1920s this is sort of that evolution bob hyde wrote doo-wop music in its purest form is simple innocent joyous romantic and almost spiritual it doesn't make a political statement it doesn't hammer you into a comatose state with its rhythm and beat you don't need to smoke anything illegal to grasp the meaning of the lyrics 
So it's like that sweet, shiny, innocent sound. Might dance to that at prom. Right. And then another blogger I was reading wrote, R&B was about sex, but doo-wop was about love. Yes. <laughs> they were, another reason doo-wop... For doo-wop's huge popularity in the mid-50s was the music sprang from the ground up. It was street music, as opposed to pop music at the time, which was imposed from the top down by professional songwriters in their organizations. So this is the organic street music that we're picking mm. up at the time. These are the garage bands of the mid-50s. Yes. <laughs> so within the subgenre of doo-wop, there's this phenomenon of the bird groups. The birds? No, no, no. The bird groups. It's like in the early 2000s and everyone was like, the strokes, the hives. Etc. Yes. So these are doo-wop groups with names that are birds. So some of the, the ones you might know, the ravens, the orioles, the penguins, which you know the penguins. They're very good. Um, and interesting. <laughs> you are the angel. Earth oh, that's a great angel. song. Yeah, that's the penguins. And they were from Cleveland. In 1953, and they took their name from an ad for Cool Cigarettes. Oh, cool. Which used Willie the Penguin for advertising. Right. And they decided that since they were cool, they would be called the Penguins. Cool. And Cool, with a K, <laughs> for sure. The platters were signed only because they had to take the platters if they wanted the Penguins. Really? And the platters are Huge. one of the best vocal harmony groups of all time. Smoke gets in your eyes so. by the platters. Like if you can listen to that and not be a little misty, you're wrong. Now rockabilly was another style popularized at the time in a little subgenre. It's a portmanteau uh, combining rock and hillbilly. Go figure. And it was used as a pejorative. For these artists at the time, it was thrown at them with as an insult. Right. But they loved it. <laughs> I think it sounds great. <laughs> and we're going to keep it. And so they did. And rockabilly just combines a lot of the country and western tropes, sounds, instruments, and signatures with jazz, blues, and R&B. Right. Another weird little pocket of songs a uh, little subgenre is novelty songs novelty records and it's basically how rock started <laughs> yes so they could be parodies like full-on parodies or they could just have a gimmick like the song kakaka katie beautiful lady that with the stuttering that kakaka that thing that's uh -huh. a gimmick that makes it a novelty record and like I want to be loved by you. The Betty Boop song. Boop, boop, baby. That's considered a novelty song. Now, a lot of times they'll like decide to take on the subject matter of a foreign land, but do absolutely no research into said foreign land and mm. just try to capture a general feeling of the exotic foreign land, which leads us to some incredibly racist stuff. I feel like it's like a song about an Arab I'm trying to think of. Ahab the Arab. Yeah. But the, like, or no, the Sheik of Araby is yeah. the, like the old one. Yeah, they're rough. A lot of Indian songs like that, too. Oh, interesting. Like, hmm. like Feathers. Oh, you mean like Native American? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, mm -hmm. right. You could almost put the Peter Pan song, What Makes the Red Man Red, uh, in that category. <laughs> Still don't know. Really did think about my dad when I was Still a kid. Think you knew now. <laughs> it was um, like songs like One Eyed, One Eared, One Eyed, One Horn. Whatever. Flying Purple, Purple People, People Eater. Yes. The Big Bopper. Chantilly lace and a pretty. And yeah. that's 
what's novelty about that is him going, do I what? Like having the one-sided yeah. phone conversation. Like, Yuckety yuck. Don't talk back. The coasters. Uh, it's also things like the witch doctor. Et cetera. Oh, there are right. a lot of really enduring novelty records that were made during the 50s. Yeah. Itsy bitsy teeny weeny. Yellow polka dot bikini. Yes. And then the chipmunk song. <sighs> Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot of that. And then in pop music, there was this new phenomenon since we were marketing to teenagers, so we had a multi-tiered marketing strategy where people like Mitch Miller, who was with Columbia Records, would use this approach where he essentially took an artist and cast them as a certain type. Interesting. And so, as a quote, he approached each record as a miniature story often casting the vocalist according to type. Miller and the producers who followed his model were creating a new sort of pop record. Instead of capturing the sound of live groups, they were making three-minute musicals, matching singers to songs in the same way that movie producers match stars to film roles. As Miller told Time magazine in 1951, every singer has a certain sound he makes better than others. Frankie Lane is sweat and hard words. He's a guy beating a pillow, a purveyor of basic emotions. Guy Mitchell is better with happy-go-lucky songs. He's a virile young singer and gives a vivacious lift. Rosemary Clooney is a barrel house dame, a hillbilly at heart. It was a way of thinking perfectly suited to the new market in which vocalists were creating unique identities and hit songs that were performed as television skits. And so by the end of the 1950s, you had people recording psychodramas, like very linear narrative songs. Makes me think of murder ballads. Okay, yes. But that gave way to the teen tragedy genre, which, oh my God, there are so many examples of this. It is ridiculous. So many people died in early 50s music. (laughs) Full of tragedy angst personified you mean yes these are kind of teeny bopper murder ballads steve goodwin like a friend of mine named steve I, goodwin. I have a friend yeah. or a song yeah so he says the most perfect country and western song but he also calls these the dead girl songs yeah they're murder ballads yes. almost they just aren't always murdered and so these include things like tell laura i love her last kiss pearl jam cover yes teen angel leader of the pack etc Now, they usually have, like, a loved one who is telling the story of finding out that someone is dead or how they found out that someone was dead or maybe how they died, (laughs) but usually death. Refrain usually serves as the goodbye. Um, For example, in Tell Laura I Love Her, it says, Tell Laura I Love Her. Tell Laura I Need Her. Tell Laura Not to Cry. My love for her will never die. Or in Teen Angel, Teen Angel, can you hear me? Teen Angel, can you see me? Are you somewhere up above? And am I still your one true love? Or in Last Kiss, oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. I can only hear Eddie Vedder's voice. It's ruined, yes. Not Uh, ruined. No, that's a fantastic song. perfectly lovely but the idea that it existed before that is something i can never believe (laughs) and there was this great av club article about these 
and it really does drive home the point that they are like murder ballads, but we don't have a killer. Like, it's not a confession. Right. You know, like, they're not trying to rid themselves of guilt. They're just grappling with the consequences. They're usually about accidents. Oh, yeah. Uh, Car accidents. And that is a new thing, too. Teenagers having cars is a new thing. And sometimes there are suicides, but that's usually only meant to appeal to country and Western fans. Oh, well, well. (laughs) Um, They say they're deathly serious, but high camp, openly rebellious, and deeply uncool. (laughs) Deeply cool, you mean? No, they don't. Screw you, AV Club. So I'd like to take this moment to make this... This out there, in the dark, no one is here to support me with a paper argument. We do that sometimes. That There's an amazing teen tragedy song that is written in 1971. And it is one of the best odes to the 50s that's ever been written. And it's about an accident that happened to all of us. A long, long time ago. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died Uh, Such a fantastic song. Without a doubt, one of the 20th century's best achievements in music. Do truly love this song. Our kids both love this song. Love it. But it is about the day the music died. So the song was recorded in 1971 by Don McLean. And the first few verses are about his experience as a paperboy when he delivered a newspaper. And on the front page, in February... He read that there had been a plane crash and that on that plane had been Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. So it happened on February 3rd, 1959, and the group had been on their way to Fargo, North Dakota. This is where all the cool kids hang out. Apparently. The plane went down near Clear Lake, Iowa. Now, Buddy Holly had been on, had been on his winter dance party tour, which was making its way through the northern Midwest. Holly had just left his band, The Crickets, but put together a new group for the tour, which included Waylon Jennings on bass, Tommy Alsup on guitar, and Carl Bunch on drums. And there were supporting vocals provided by Frankie Sardo. (coughs) There were a few other musicians who joined in as support artists, like Richie Valens, The Big Bopper, or J.P. Richardson, and Dion DiMucci and his band, The Belmonts. Now, the first gig was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January 23rd, 1959. And even at the beginning, everything seemed very unorganized and like it did not bode well. The tour manager had failed to properly schedule the show so that it left enough time to make it from one show to another. And another problem was their tour bus, which was not suited for cold weather. And it didn't have heat or the heat broke. And the flu started to spread. 
among the people on the tour. And so in, in an effort to make their journey more comfortable, they found a school bus. The school bus was the upgrade. The group booked a gig on the fly in Clear Lake, Iowa, because they had a free date. And Holly decided that he was going to charter a flight to Fargo and rest before rejoining the rest of the company. The gang. The gang in Moorhead, Minnesota. Now, the manager of the club in Clear Lake arranged the flight for Holly. And he booked a flight on a 1947 single-engine V-tailed Beechcraft 35 Bonanza, which could seat three passengers plus a pilot. The pilot was Roger Peterson, who was a 21-year-old local with 711 hours of flying experience. The flight price was $36 per passenger. Can you imagine chartering a plane for that? I wish. also can't imagine hiring a 21-year-old boy to fly me. Buddy Holly was like 22. So, of course, much jockeying for the two other seats on the plane began. And Richardson, or Bopper, had the flu. And he asked Waylon Jennings if he could have the seat that he was going to take on the plane. And Jennings is like, sure. And somehow, Richie Valens talked Tommy Alsup out of his seat. The plane took off from Mason City Municipal Airport, which is near Clear Lake, at 12.55 a.m. on February 3rd. The plane made its initial left turn, climbed 800 feet, and the taillights started to lose altitude until it fell out of the sky. Five minutes later, Peterson failed to make initial radio contact, and they tried hailing the plane again and again with no success. No calls came in, no report of arrival. So in the morning, they went out looking for the plane and found it six miles from the airport. The plane had hit the ground at a high speed with its nose down. Its right wing tip struck first and made the plane roll across the cornfield about 540 feet. The plane stopped when it reached a wire fence at the end of the field. Buddy Holly and Richie Valens were thrown from the plane and found near the wreckage. Richardson was found over the fence in a neighboring field while Peterson's body was trapped inside the wreckage of fuselage. The coroner stated that all four of the victims had died on impact. Now, an official report from the Civil Aeronautics Board, the cause of the accident was the pilot's unwise decision to embark on a flight which would necessitate flying solely by instruments when he was not properly certified or qualified to do so. Assuming they shouldn't hire a 21-year-old. Basically. (laughs) Contributing factors were serious deficiencies in weather briefing, and the pilot's unfamiliarity with the instrument, which determines the altitude of the aircraft. So, the day the music died has gone down in infamy in rock history. And with that, a lot of stories and legends have come up around it. So, supposedly, each of the stars that died in the accident had premonitions of their death. Just like Abraham Lincoln. Right. So, the Big Bopper... He was actually a radio DJ in Beaumont and, while he was working on his musical career. And in 1957, he hosted a discathon, Ooh. which was a gimmick that where the DJs would stay awake as long as they could and play as many records as they could. So Jerry Boynton, who served as a radio announcer for KTRM, remembered the incident where Richardson, the big bopper, was nearly exhausted. He'd been awake for more than three straight days. And Richardson asked, Jer, you think I'm going to die? And Boyne replied, JP, I think you are. And they laughed. So finally, after setting a new record of 122 hours and eight minutes, just over five days, they called it quits. So through all the coffee and who knows what else, the Big Bopper began to hallucinate and at one time foresaw his own death, later saying, 
And the other side wasn't so bad. Well, at least there's that. So Richie Valens has a famous event in his life that is like depicted in the movie La Bamba that explains that his intense fear of flying he had. Whenever he was a kid, he was in middle school, he attended his grandfather's funeral. And once they got home with the family, they heard a great explosion and looked out to see a plane falling from the sky. Now, reportedly, the family followed the path of the crashing plane to find the hellacious scene. The crash site landed between the school and the, near, and the next door church. Three students were killed and many more injured. And it was thought, you know, if he hadn't been at this funeral and skipped school that day, he might have been dead too. Yeah, that's going to leave a mark. So I did look this up and it really did happen. <laughs> It was a crash between a military jet and a Douglas aircraft, and it killed three students and more than 70 people were injured and generated more than $10 million in lawsuits, which is about $7 billion in today's dollars. Holy crap. It's amazing we still have an Air Force. But just before Valens was to catch his flight to join the tour, he attended a church service with a friend. As friend said, on his final night in L.A., he'd gone to the Guardian Angels Church on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. And prayed for a safe journey. He was afraid of airplanes. And he told Gail, his friend. But he was getting used to them and might even take one at some point during the winter dance party. Gail warned that it was snowy and storming in the north and asked, What'd you do if you crash? And he said, I'll land on my guitar. Now Buddy Holly, who had just been married just a few months. Like six, I think. Had agreed to go on the dance party because of his new wife, Maria Elena, who was pregnant and he had also just broken up with the crickets and he was as Waylon Jennings said flat broke <laughs> wordsmith Waylon but according to Maria Elena they both had these crazy dreams before he left for the winter dance party Maria was awakened suddenly from a nightmare where she was standing in a vast open area much like a farm I didn't know where I was or how I got there and then all of a sudden, I could hear noises like shouting, and it got closer and closer in the distance. I could see all these people running, 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 and shouting, They're coming! Hide! Maria was convinced that she would be trampled by the onrushing mob. As the crowd parted around her, she heard a terrible noise and then saw a descending ball of fire falling from the heavens. Now, she said her husband, Buddy Holly, had also said that he had dreamed that he was in a plane and had dropped Maria off on the top of a building, promising that he would come back to pick her up. Mm. Now, she said, we were both dreaming the same dream at the same time, and there was so much that came true if you put two and two together. Buddy leaving me, an airplane crash on a farm, it was like someone saying something to me, but I didn't listen. Now, in 1958, Buddy Holly was on a tour of England when a famed record producer, Joe Meek, came and personally slipped him a note warning him that in a recent tarot card session, he had gotten the message that Buddy Holly was going to die in February. That's a hell of a tarot card session. Right. And now February had already passed, so he kind of blew it off. Cool. And... He even mentioned the weird moment in an interview with the BBC. Oh, no. Is it true? Yeah. Holy shit. It's like Jimi Hendrix. It's crazy. So then, of course, we mentioned Waylon Jennings, one of the most important country music singers. And my favorite. Jacob picked on me so badly one day because I was like, if I had to listen to one person sing every song, like, 
if that was the deal you made with the devil, like you could hear music, but it had to be all the same artists singing every song. I'd want it to be Waylon Jennings. And for like a week, he like Kate would come by and sing an inappropriately Waylon, <laughs> inappropriate song for Waylon Jennings to sing in a Waylon Jennings voice. And I was like, oh, my baby, don't mess around. <laughs> But she loves me so, this I know for show. I can hear it. It's fine. <laughs> so, of course, he gave up his seat to the Big Bopper because he had the flu. And according to Waylon Jennings, he told Holly that he was giving up his seat and he was going to take the bus. And Holly jokingly told him that he hoped the bus would break down. To which Jennings replied, well, I hope your old plane crashes. Ugh. He said, God Almighty, for years, I thought I caused it. And so in 1978, he released a song a long time ago where he said, Don't ask me who I gave my seat to on that plane. I think you already know. I told you that a long time ago. So Holly was actually buried on February 7th of 1959 in Lubbock, and Jennings was unable to attend the funeral because he had to continue on with the tour. So did he, like, take Buddy Holly's place? No, someone else took his place. Okay. Now, Tommy Alsop, the guitarist who gave up his seat for Richie Valens, gave it up to the famous coin toss. No. Alsop recalled in 2007, he asked me four or five times, could he fly in my place? For some reason, I pulled a half dollar out of my pocket and flipped it. He said heads, and I came up heads. So I went out to the station wagon and told Buddy, I said, I'm not going. Me and Richie flipped a coin. He's going in my place. And Buddy said, cool. But, interestingly enough... Alsup had given Buddy his wallet because they wanted Buddy to go pick up a certified letter for him. So whenever they found the wreckage and they found that wallet. No, no. But they couldn't find the body. Oh, my God. And this was back in the day when they would just report things. Yeah. <laughs> and so they thought and looked for Tommy Alsup's body for hours and hours. Oh, my God. Now, luckily... According to Tommy Alsop, he had called his family to check in just before the long, reports, yeah, reports kind of came out and they tried to contact his family that he had died. From all of this, there's become this great Buddy Holly curse that so many people tangentially related to Buddy Holly were cursed. Cursed, you say? So Ronnie Smith was the vocalist who was hired to replace Holly on the tour. Now, in 1962, so just a few years later, he was actually committed to a Texas state hospital for drug abuse, and on October 25th, hanged himself in the bathroom of the state hospital. That's, that's fucking horrible. So is he the first victim of the curse? If you don't count Buddy. So Eddie Cocker, and we've mentioned him a few times, he was supposed to be on the winter dance party. But he had booked some TV gigs, and Buddy was like, oh, no, that's so important. You need to go. You do you. And he was forever racked with guilt over being spared and really thought he had cheated death. So Sharon Sheely was a singer-songwriter who was involved with Eddie Cochran, and she went to England to meet Eddie on his tour. So when Sharon arrived in England, she found Eddie Beer severely depressed. He was tra- taking tranquilizers to deal with his depression, and he was convinced that he had cheated death. On one occasion, he asked Sharon to buy as many of Buddy's records as she could find, and he would sit in his room playing the songs over and over again. Oh, Jesus Christ. When Shirley asked, doesn't it upset you hearing Buddy this way? 
Eddie would say in a faraway voice, oh no, because I'll be seeing him soon. Oh God, did he? Well, on April 17th of 1960, a car carrying Cochran, his girlfriend Sherry Shealy, and singer Gene Vincent blew a tire and crashed on its way to London's Heathrow Airport for their return flight to the States. Vincent injured his legs, Shealy broke her back and neck, and Cochran sustained major head injuries, and he died the next day after being visited by members of the Crickets. Oh, my God. And what year was that? 1960. Oh, my God. The next year. The next year. Yeah. yeah. So the last single released by Eddie Cochran was entitled Three Steps to Heaven, and the Crickets were his backing band. Oh, my God. And he was 22 when he died. Same age as Buddy Holly. So are we making a 22 club? I guess so. And the list can go on and on. Lloyd Estel Copas, also known as Cowboy Copas, was the country gentleman of song. He was a <laughs> Grand Ole Opry regular, and it actually played... On the same tour as Buddy Holly and the Two Tones. The Two Tones? So they were before they were the Crickets. Yeah. And so on March 5th of 1963, Copas was flying in a Piper Comanche with fellow country musicians Hawkshaw Hawkins and Patsy Cline. Oh no. Oh no. When the plane crashed. Oh no. Near Nashville, Tennessee, killing all on board. Oh no. Okay. Are there more? Oh God. Yes. No. So the crickets continued on after they broke up with Buddy Holly, or he broke up with them. They hired, Who's to say? They hired David Box as the lead singer. Now, he went on to attempt a solo career after ending it with the crickets. And on October 23rd, 1964, he hired a Cessna Skyhawk to fly to a show in Harris County. And shortly after takeoff, the Cessna nosedived into the ground, killing all three passengers. And he was 22 years old. Now, this is a crazy one. Bobby Fuller. Now, he famously sang the song, I Fought the Law. Yes. I fought the law in the law, law one. I fought the law in the law Right, one. which everyone recorded after The Clash. It was like one of the most famous versions. And that song was written by a former member of the Crickets. And the last song that Bobby Fowler recorded was Love Made a Fool of You, which was written by Buddy Holly. Hmm. Now, he is one of those people where you will find these like articles by musical historians saying like he would have been the next Brian Wilson. Okay. Like he knew how to use a studio, was extremely innovative. Like if he was had continued to be alive, he would have been something. On July 18th of 1966, he received a phone call at his Hollywood apartment. Now, he lived with his mom there, and he told his mom, I gotta go. I'll be right back. And he took her car. Fuller didn't return to the apartment by the next morning, so his mom was worried, called the road manager to look for the car. Approximately 5 p.m. that next day, the car appeared in the driveway. Oh, what? In the parking lot of the apartment. Thank God. It had been the lot for about 30 minutes before his mother found it. Yet, Fuller's body was in advanced stages of rigor. He was beaten. He was dead when she opened the car? Oh, yeah. He was covered in gas. No. And they found gas in his stomach. No. Now, no one knows what happened. People say, oh, it was an accident with LSD. Or he was killed by the Manson family. Fun. Or it was retribution for a dalliance with the girlfriend of a mob-connected L.A. nightclub owner. Obviously. (laughs) Our one theory, this is interesting, 
implicated Keane, his manager, noting that Fuller was the third artist under his charge after Valens and Sam Cooke to die in mysterious circumstances. Sam Cooke could be an entire episode. <sighs> that is an incredible ending. And Valens was on the plane right. with Buddy Holly. Richie Valens. La bamba. La 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 bamba. It's amazing. No investigation. They didn't even fingerprint. They were like, ah, crazy rock and roll, drug addict, suicide. Shut up. Suicide. This is the era of the teenage runaways also. Like, this is when everybody that goes missing is just, they just yeah, ran away. Teenage runaway. So Joe Meek. Joe Meek is the guy that predicted his death. Yeah, gave him the letter. He became plagued with depression, grew to be obsessed with Buddy Holly, to the point where he claimed that Buddy Holly's ghost would visit him in his dreams. And he ended up killing his landlady and then himself with a shotgun on February 3rd of 1967. God. Exactly eight years to the day after Holly's death. I mean, like, part of me is like, well, yeah, he did that on purpose. He was obsessed with him. Who knows? Um, and the list goes on and on. There's so many tangentially related people where terrible things happened. So in 1977, the Buddy Holly story came out, the movie. Okay. Starring Gary Busey. <laughs> okay. Who would win an Oscar. Really? Yeah. So, but shortly before the film's release, the screenwriter, Robert Gitler, killed himself. And Busey himself was involved in a motorcycle crash. Now, the film was released in England on September 6 of 1978. Okay. In attendance was Paul and Linda McCartney. Yeah, heard of him. And their buddy, Keith Moon. No. And his girlfriend, Annette mm. Walter Lax. Now, after seeing the movie, he went home. He'd been trying to deal with his alcoholism, and he'd been on tranquilizers. And depending on how you want to read it, he took too many and died. Yes. Keith Moon, the drummer of The Who, died of drug overdose after going see... The Buddy Holly story. Yes. Which was released on Buddy Holly's birthday. So he died on Buddy Holly's birthday. Right. Okay. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. And the list goes on and on. You can even take it all the way to, like, Weezer. Right. Ooh-wee-ooh, I look just like Buddy Holly. Right. Now, their bassist would eventually leave the group after having a nervous breakdown, and he was found dead in a hotel room. In 2011. So it, to this day. So you're not encouraged or allowed. So are we going to be cursed? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, Dan. We've just kind of gotten things together. Maybe we're too old. Hopefully so. Hopefully we're past the... So the one advantage of being so ancient. <laughs> I mean, so you could say this curse was spread to an entire generation of people that were linked to Buddy Holly. So let's get back to our our song, which is full of urban legends. So American Pie is one of those songs like that everyone has a theory about. Oh, and I love reading it. And people say it's almost a parlor game, which I think is accurate because it is. It's something you can get together and talk about with people. Oh, right. But this song is made up of obscure references and allusions to very large cultural figures and happenings. Yeah. And so you can see that from the first verse, or from the second verse, is where it really picks up. You know, the first verse is all about Buddy Holly. And once you have that context, you're in the frame of mind of thinking about pop culture and music, and then it's really driven home through the second verse. Uh, do you want to play it? Yeah. Let's play it. Did you write the book of love and
Did you write the Book of Love? There's a Magnetic Field song from way after this is released. Well, that's not going to be it, is it? <laughs> no. I love when people do that, though, because they'll be like, oh, Bohemian Rhapsody is about AIDS. And you're like, mm. no, they didn't have AIDS. I mean, it existed, it but they didn't know what it was named, yes. in 1975. Malapropisms on the Reddit there He's are most impressive. But one song that was released before... This song was released was The Book of Love by the Monotones. Yes. And they were a group from New Jersey and they grew up in the housing projects. They ranged in age from 15 to 18. One of the lyrics is Who wrote the Book of Love? Was it someone from above? And it's like this religious illusion in a rock song, divinely inspired rock and roll, grappling with universal truths and the meaning of life with a doo wop beat. Now, the story of the song's writing says that the lead singer saw a toothpaste commercial, which said, you'll wonder where the yellow went. Got the word wonder stuck in his head. And then he saw sheet music for another song called Book of Love and was like, oh, and that's where the song came from. However, there are rumors that a 15-year-old girl named uh, Pearl McKinnon who is the lead singer of the Kodaks, actually wrote the song and that it was swiped. Hmm. Oh, no. So here we have a song with this religiosity, this feeling of contemplating your existence, etc., in this incredibly 50s way. But there is debate about who wrote the song, which I think is interesting. Another line that stands out, if the Bible tells you so. I know. I know Jesus loves me. Yes. I, yes. But there's also a song released by Don Cornell called The Bible Tells Me So. And it was released in 1955. And the song offers the wisdom, don't worry about tomorrow, just be real good today. And the refrain is, how do I know for the Bible tells me so? So it's literally like taking that line. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I always just thought like, oh, it's just like religion. And then like the next one's like rock and roll, like... And, and the, like, like the, opposition between the two. Right, because rock and roll was the devil's music. It, it is the devil's music. Okay, fine. Um, Yazelbub. Has devil for a sandbar me. And then we get, do you believe in rock and roll? Can music save your mortal soul? Which may be an allusion to the 1965 release of Do You Believe in Magic by The Love and Spoonful. Eh. Oh, bullshit. It's almost exactly. Yeah? It's so close. Do you believe in magic of a young girl's soul? Do you believe in the magic of rock and roll? Uh, okay. Believe in the magic and it can set you free. It also says at some point that love is like trying to tell a stranger about rock and roll. 
Okay. Okay, I see the lines yeah. you're referencing. And then you have songs. This dancing. Dancing is such a pure thing in the 50s. Well, sock hops. Sock hops. They take off like, their shoes kick and Kick off dance. your shoes. Yeah. And Dig those rhythm and blues. Okay, that's a different story. We're not there yet. I, mean, I think it's all... To, it, has more than one meaning. Right. But there are songs like Mama Teach Me How to Dance, which was written by Al Hoffman and recorded by Edie Gourmet. And she's asking her mother to literally teach her how to dance so that she can attract the boy that she will eventually fall in love with and have a family and settle down just the way her parents have. And she says, suppose I meet somebody very sweet. And if he says, ooh, I would love to dance with you, what do I do? Mama, teach me to dance. Once I learn how to dance, you can leave the rest to me. And never fear, you're going to hear wedding bells, Mama dear. So it's this ultra-sweet saccharine... A doo-wop kind of like, thing. Like, well, oh, I'm going to dance with a boy and he's going to yeah. marry me. I know some things. Like, it's just sweet. It's not yes. about sex. It's, it's about, about love. love. Yes. And, like, I know that you're in love with him because I saw you dancing in the gym. And, like, in my mind, this references... I saw her standing there by the Beatles. Okay. Which was released in 1963. And it's this absolute assuredness that dancing equals love <laughs> in that song. It like jumps up and down about it. And it was a Lennon McCartney composition. And the lyrics that draw this to mind for me are, we danced all night and we held each other tight. And before too long, I fell in love with her. Now I'll never dance with another since I saw her standing there. It's like, I know you're in love with him. I saw you dancing in the gym. Now, allegedly, John had thrown out the lyric, she was no beauty queen. You know, know what, what I mean. mean. <laughs> Which turned into, she was just 17. Yeah. You know what I mean. And now it's dirty when Paul <sighs> sings it. But that made me wonder, Don McLean being the listener of music and the scholar of music that he was. Right, and he. it's important to note is that like, he prides himself in writing these like extremely poetic, poetic, complex songs. It's not like he just sat down and wrote this in a day. No, he wrote it over the course of like a year and a half or something. Yeah. But this, she was no beauty queen. You know what I mean? One must wonder if that's Miss American Pie. No. <laughs> just saying. It's fun. Shut up. I have a theory. Then he's like, man, I dig those rhythm and blues. And that is another thing that made me think of the Beatles. Because they openly admit to using Chuck Berry's bass line in, their song, in that song specifically. Oh, yeah. And Paul's even said that their early recordings were definitely us doing black music. That's what everything that came out of the UK in the 60s but he's was. Like, that's what we thought we were doing, which yeah. I think is adorable because they aren't. Oh, that's sweet. And R&B, like I said, kind of replaced the race music moniker. And then we get the line about lonely teenage Bronk and Buck. The lonely, love-struck teenager is a trope throughout 1950s rock oh, music. Yes. There's Lonely Boy by Paul Anka, Mr. Lonely by Bobby Vinton, Teenager in Love by Dion and the Belmonts, who was touring with Holly. Very true. And there's a sample lyric, I'll be the lonely one if you should say we're through. Each night I ask the stars up above, why must I be a teenager in love? So Lonely Teenage Bronking Buck really calls to mind that song for me. Right. And the Pink Carnation and a Pickup Chuck, that's a really obvious one. Is it obvious? Yeah. Do you think that many people know about the song? Well, if you know 50s, 60s music, you know White, white sport coat, coat and a Pink Carnation. And a Pink 
reincarnation. And that's Marty Robbins, who would later do El Paso. I love that song. Which is amazing. <laughs> um, and it's about a boy who stood up on prom night. Right. It's a sad teen song. Yes. So, then we, like, let's actually take a minute and look at the chorus, because... It's the least interesting part of the song. But, okay. So, first of all. Let's let's look at it in a strictly autobiographical way, which I think is what it is. I think this is the one part of the song for which McLean is present. He's like, yeah, I need a chorus. He would sometimes go to a bar in New York called The Levee, which would sporadically close without warning. So sometimes you could go to The Levee and The Levee would be dry. And then the him and his friends would drive on up to Rye, New York to drink. Sure. Is supposedly a thing. Okay. Oh, and there's also an internet rumor that he was dating a Miss America contestant at the <laughs> time. I highly doubt that. I don't think that's true. But think about how much it resembles the refrains of those teen tragedy songs. It's oh, yeah. functioning as him saying goodbye. It's a nod to mortality. It reminds me a lot of Last Kiss because mm-hmm. it's like... Mm-hmm. I've got to be good so I can see my baby when yeah. I leave this world. It's like, this will be the day that I die. And then that's like, that'll be the day. Oh, of course. When yes. you say goodbye. Oh. The Buddy Holly song, that'll right. be the day. And eventually, like, he's he's promising to do many things. Like, that'll be the day that you make me cry. You say goodbye. Yeah. It's, but then he gets to, oh, that'll be the day when I die. Ba-ba-ba-ba. And Yeah. So that is a an acknowledgement High five to Buddy Holly, too. For sure. I mean, that's another, like, really obvious one. I read a really complicated paper in a book on the subject of American Pie. Like, the whole thing was just scholarly interpretations of the song. Ooh, fun. I only read one because they're ridiculously heavy. But this one says this is all about race relations and nothing else. And oh, the whole song. Yes. That's a really one-sided look at it. I think that's in here. Oh, yeah. But I think that it is mostly about Buddy Holly. <laughs> What's about that transitionary yeah. period? And we'll get to more of that. Um, but some people say that the chorus is about the Freedom Summer murders in Mississippi. Interesting. And okay. they say the good old boys drinking whiskey and rye are the, the KKK. Klux Klan, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm it's like, not like that crazy. Interesting. I, I just don't think that that's what it's about. Oh, but there are race relations coming through in the song, clearly. So let's look at the next verse. All right, let's play it. All right, DJ Jacob. Let me put this disc on. The song was probably begun around 1969. Ten years now, we've been on our own. For 
pretty. Another day the music died reference. Yeah. And then we get to Moss Grows Fat on a Rolling Stone. Oh, this one has been. Hyper analyzed. Oh, yeah. And not, not always for the best. <laughs> like some people said it was about Bob Dylan losing his touch and getting fat. <laughs> Bob Dylan is the jester. I know this. I know. And then some people said that it is about the Rolling Stones, like the literal Rolling Stones. It's also later. And then some people say it is about the magazine. And some people say it's, no. What it is, what it is, is Buddy Holly, again, recorded the song early in the morning. And the lyrics are as follows. Well, you're going to miss me early in the morning one of these days. Well, don't you know that a Rolling Stone don't gather no moss? And you cross your bridge when it's time to cross. Well, you broke my heart when you said goodbye. Now the milk is spilt and you're going to cry. So he's warning us all that we're going to miss him when he's gone. Mm-hmm. And that he's a rolling stone and that he gathers new moss. But he stopped rolling and now moss grows fat on a rolling stone. Right, right. It's about Buddy Holly. No, definitely. And the next line is Bob Dylan. Yes. Absolutely. The jester. He is the jester. And the code he borrowed from James right. Dean Refers to the red windbreaker looking jacket that he wears on the cover of Free Willin', which looks like James Dean's production stills for Rebel Without a Cause. And some people think, so who's the jester singing for? This is a big question. This the is, king and queen. Right. Who's that? Now, a lot of people will say that Joan Baez is the queen. And she comes up tangentially related to a lot of the future illusions that we're going to deal with. She was the queen of folk music before yeah. Bob Dylan showed up. Without a doubt. Now, going with that, Bob Dylan sang with her at the March on Washington for Martin Luther King, right? Right before Martin Luther King did the whole I have a dream thing, Bob Dylan did a little singing. But McLean says that the king is Elvis. Like He's not revealed everything, but he says the king's Elvis, which, fair, I mean, it makes sense because he's like the song is about that like transition between generations, different musical styles. And it's like Jimi Hendrix playing Dylan's song with electric guitar is cited as one of those touchstone moments mm-hmm. at Woodstock that changed the face of rock and roll. Fair. And it's like Elvis was done after that. He was a Vegas sideshow. It was now about Dylan and Hendrix, Hendrix and, and Baez and the Who and all of that. And Elvis had been in the army. Like that's the thing people think that that was like a cap on the end of that genre and moment. Yeah. But I like am so sure that there is some tie to Martin Luther King. <laughs> so I have I'm a crazy sure tinfoil theory for you. So maybe it's both. I mean, it could be. Things can mean more than one thing. Right, maybe it's both. So Elvis did record one of Bob Dylan's songs. A couple, actually. But one was like an ori- like more tied to Elvis than it was to Bob Dylan. And that is Tomorrow is a Long Time, which Elvis recorded for his album How Great Thou Art, which was released in 1966. Now, Bob Dylan said that Elvis recording his song was the highlight of his career. Like, he really, like, unironically fucking loved Elvis. I mean, his early stuff is amazing. It's true. It really is good. But the first time that song was ever performed in public 
or recorded was for a live album that Bob Dylan did at New York Town Hall on April 23rd of 1963. On the same day that Dylan was recording this song that Elvis sang, the Good Friday March in Birmingham was happening, Hmm. where Martin Luther King was arrested for parading without a permit and thrown in the Birmingham jail. And that's where he writes the famous letter from the Birmingham jail. And later, this would also lead to John F. Kennedy, then a senator, calling Coretta Scott King and asking if there was anything he could do to get her husband out of jail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which would lead to the dialogue starting and people seeing Kennedy as his champion of civil rights, even though he'd like really not fully embraced it yet. He didn't have time. <laughs> no, I mean, even when uh, he was campaigning, uh, okay. like he was That's not... Awesome. He wasn't quite there yet, mm-hmm. but people liked that about him. They liked that he was open he was to it. He was thinking like, about her. Yeah. And it may have changed the outcome of the election. It may have, like, it was this huge thing. And it starts on the day that Dylan records the song that becomes an Elvis song. So I don't know if there's anything to that, but for what it's worth, it's better than the Reddit theories. <laughs> So, the courtroom was adjourned. No verdict was returned. This is about the Warren Commission, right? JFK was assassinated, and the Warren Commission was put together to look into mm-hmm. the conclusions reached by the FBI and see if there was a conspiracy. On the grassy knoll. On the grassy knoll, etc. Mm-hmm. And nothing came of it, and they were like, nah, all good, everything's kosher. Whatever. And so, that is about that going. And then Lennon read a book on Marx. It's not Lennon. Like the fabric? No, like the Russian. It's not the Russian. It's not the Russian. It's the Brit. (laughs) For sure. So it's about John Lennon. And the Beatles music was becoming more political. Like Revolution. Right. uh, In 1968. Says something, some stuff about Chairman Mao. And Lennon had just kind of declared that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, which <laughs> led yeah. to like a burning of their albums and adults deciding they were evil. It cetera. went well. It went well. So the quartet practiced in the park and they would eventually perform their last live concert. If you exclude the top the of top Apple's. Apple records. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, not. Count. No. Their last real concert was in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And this was done right before they recorded Sergeant Peppers. So they're practicing in the park before they assume their role as sergeants. Now, right before the Beatles played their San Francisco show, they had played Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. And 25 fans were arrested and dozens more were injured when they tried to rush, rush the, the field. field. So the quartet practiced in the park. We sang dirges in the dark. This probably refers to... Robert Kennedy's assassination, I think, because like that, those two events happened in the same place. Robert yeah. Kennedy was assassinated in L.A. at the Ambassador Hotel. And I think that there may be some kind of geographical tie. But you can back out from it. You can zoom out and you mm-hmm. can say it's just, you know, the rash of assassinations oh, of yeah. politically active I mean, just all people. The right. And like then all of the death from, yeah, Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam protesters, just Vietnam in general. Civil rights, civil movement, rights protesters, Black Panthers, yeah, like they're Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. You can just say it's the rash of death that Which we are is witnessing. Probably, I think more what it is, just like all of this death. And so you mentioned the Beatles. I mean, they say helter skelter. Speaking of the White Album, 
They do say Helter Skelter. So, of course, Helter Skelter is a Beatles song that a certain guy named Charlie was really into. Okay, before we talk about Charlie, I have to tell you this because I think it's hilarious. Paul McCartney wrote Helter Skelter after reading a review of a Who album and deciding he knew what that sounded like. Like, not (laughs) hearing the record, but reading a review. I believe that 100%. So, yes, Charlie was very moved by... The White Album. He, in fact, believed it had been written especially for him and his family. Yeah, family. He believed it was instructions for how to begin a race war. Mmm, fun. And he and his family need to move out to the desert. They'd even gotten dune buggies (laughs) to use in the desert. So that they would not be killed in the race war. But there were things like... Honey pie. Honey pie, you're making me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. Won't you please come home? That was the Beatles saying that they were too lazy to come to California to assume their role as heads of the family, and they needed them to go to London. It's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Basically. And then, oh, there's some other fantastic ones, like piggies definitely factored into his thinking. Cops. And then Helter Skelter was the name of the race war that was coming. And you may recognize words like piggies and Helter Skelter as having appeared written in blood at the scene of the Manson family murders of Sharon Tate and others. So, yeah, Charles Manson believed that the Beatles were giving him specific instructions on how to start a race war by releasing the White Album. Well, you know, Charles Manson was part of the Beach Boys, right? Right, and competing bands never get along. Yeah. They're rivals. Right. Uh, what? What? He's not a Beach Boy. He was not a Beach Boy, but then you will hear that people say that. But he did record with the Beach Boys. I love this as much as I hate it. So in the summer of love, in summer 1968, Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson was driving along Sunset Boulevard mm-hmm. and picked up two hitchhikers. No. Lovely young ladies. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, they started chatting and they were like, oh, you should really meet this guy that lives with us. He's he's a musician. Y'all get along really well. He's like our spiritual guru. Uh-huh. His name's Charlie. <laughs> and Dennis is like, that guy sounds charming. He introduced him to his friend saying, this is Charlie. He's the wizard, man. He's a gas. He's a gas, gas, gas. Exactly. It's interesting because Charles Manson had been talking about how all we had to do is like put this out into the universe and we get it. His ties to Dennis Wilson, 
confirm to the family that he really did have this kind of spiritual essence. Diane Lake, who was a family member, said, Charlie told us that all we had to do was ask the universe for what we wanted and it would be presented. In the connection with Dennis Wilson, it appeared that was precisely what had happened. Charlie had led us to the communal promised land. Everything he'd asked for had come to pass. So, of course, they had a summer of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Late in the summer, Wilson brought Manson into the studio to record some music. Fine! At first, Manson was super pumped, but he didn't like Wilson's team or producers trying to mess with his music, and Manson ended up pulling a knife on somebody. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? All went downhill from there. So the family, who they were all living with Dennis Wilson, wound up moving out. In September of 1968, the Beach Boys recorded a version of Manson's Cease to Exist, changing some of the lyrics and renaming it Never Learn Not to Love. And the song is credited only to Dennis Wilson. That's shitty. I mean, even if he is Charles Manson, it's shitty. Wilson, not long after, Wilson found a bullet on his bed. He thought it was shitty too, huh? Manson later said, I gave him a bullet because he changed the words to my song. And within months of the release, Manson's family had stolen some of Dennis Wilson's gold records, totaled his Mercedes, and cost him a reported $100,000. Worst house guest ever. Did the Beach Boys hang out with Charles Manson and the family? Yes, they did. Yes. And did they get gonorrhea from them? Probably. Yes. Probably. Did Dennis Wilson hire a doctor to come treat all of them? Yes. (laughs) I know more about about that than I wanted to know. <laughs> no, I know the birds. The birds are the birds. The birds are the birds. But Not your bird groups. No, the birds. And they did a cover of Dylan's Tambourine Man in 1965. But one of the members was arrested for possession of pot and was sent to rehab. And fallout shelter is another term for rehab, apparently, which I was not familiar with. And Eight Miles High is a bird song. Right. So it landed foul on the grass. You'll read a lot of people saying, oh, it's about pot. Eh, I'm not sure. Players tried for a forward pass, the jester on the sidelines in a cast. So I think that this is about politics. I think this is another zoom out moment. I think there's a lot of zoom out moments. You can't look too tight because this is a song about the transition from one period, one generation to the next. Right. It landed foul on the grass. Makes me think about JFK. The grassy knoll. Grassy knoll. There's something about that that it just, that's what it draws to mind for me. When the players tried for a forward pass, I think it's like people were trying to put progressives in power. Right. They were trying to move things forward. Right. And so we have JFK. RFK. Does not go well. Johnson in the middle in there. Uh, Yeah. Debatable. You know, I love Lyndon B. Johnson. That man was terrible and amazing. There's something about like people trying, the players trying to move things forward and it not going well, like being denied. And that's got to be the Democratic National Convention. Oh, God. Yes. The absolute horror show that it was in 1968. So everything that could go wrong in politics went wrong in 1968. Hi, Nixon. Oh, boy. But one of the things that happened was at the Democratic National Convention, there were riots protesting Johnson because Johnson had, you know, 
gotten us into Vietnam, and people were against it. Yeah. And I think a few people didn't like it. Some people were like, why didn't you do that? Because, you know, civility in politics is really important. Right. Right. So, riots. National Guard called in. Complete hellscape. And, like, that, to me, is probably, like, the essential quality of those lyrics has to do with people rejecting the model. Like, Johnson would eventually withdraw from the race, and Kennedy... RFK steps in, right? He's going to run and he's going to win and everyone's excited. Yeah. And then he's shot in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel as he is finishing the California primary. Which is now a school. Is it? It is. It's haunted as fuck. <laughs> I've never been there laid eyes on it. It's I can just two tell F-words you. It's R now. Or R. Is it two or seven? Do you know for sure? Because I don't. Just put an explicit content sticker and we're good. <laughs> Parental warning. Thanks, Tipper Gore. Fuck Tipper Gore. <laughs> I stand with John Denver on that. There's another musical history moment for you. So we tried for a forward pass, landed foul on the grass. We ended up with fucking Richard Nixon. It's like, what could be worse than Johnson? Nixon. Nixon. So Nixon. Anyway, the jester on the sidelines in the cast. Bob Dylan. Again, the jester is Bob Dylan. That's been confirmed by Don McLean. Yes. Bob Dylan was like, I'm no jester, man. I wrote great songs. Just jester's got to be somebody else, man. You have to ask him. Look, go polish your Nobel Prize. For literature. Literature, yeah. I love him. But he had been in a near-fatal motorcycle accident in 66. And so he kind of like went into hiding and was literally in a cast. So he's sitting out these major social happenings because he's otherwise occupied. So they're like their voice, the voice of the generation is being cut off or stunted at every turn. And then the line, sweet perfume. Tear have, gas. Tear gas. Do you recall what was revealed? Some people say that it's John Lennon and Yoko Ono's unfinished music number one, Two they, Virgins. Were they naked? Were they naked? No. I think it's like what was revealed about the country. I think it's more macrocosm. I agree. I think that's true. But this next verse, it really brings it home that it's like the end of this generation. Optimism. The end of that positivity that was trying to be brought forward. There we were all in one place. That's Woodstock. Easy peasy, Easy. lemon squeezy. A generation lost in space. So we have like the moon landing, the Dr- space race. Drugs. Some people say it's drugs. Yeah. 
a generation lost in space. I also think the lost generation might refer to people dying in Vietnam. I think that's probably more where it is. I, I think lost in space could be like an allusion to like or, or a metaphor for like the country putting these like lofty ambitions ahead of taking care of people. Like where we're like sending people to the moon and not sending people to the same side of the lunch counter kind of yeah. thing. You know, like we've lost to space in a way. I'm not certain. Yeah. No time left to start again. Our youth is evaporating before our very eyes and we don't get to redo this part. Right. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack Flash set on a candlestick. So this is Jumpin' Jack Flash. It's a gas, gas, gas. We're back to the stones. Motherfucking stones. So, said Brown Sugar? I did. I'm sorry. It, <laughs> it premiered. I did. At Altamont. So Altamont, this terrible incident at Altamont, is often considered the end of that 60s generation. Like, this is the death. Of that, like, ideal... Like, flower children. Flower children situation. If you're going to San Francisco. Yeah, this is it. This is the end. So, we get Jagger sat on a candlestick. He was trying to do a huge show in San Francisco. You'll recall that the Beatles did their last show in San Francisco at Candlestick Park. He was trying to do it in San Francisco. He sucked at coordinating things and... Couldn't get permits. And so they decided to move it elsewhere. So I wonder if that is a tie to the Beatles right there. But they were trying to do Woodstock Redux. The the West Coast version. Yeah. West Coast, best coast, bitches, they say. Third coast. What? We're third coast. We're third coast. We're Gulf Coast. <laughs> so in December of 1969, the Stones attempted to host this event. And they were going to do it at Altamont Speedway, which is like this little out-of-the-way place. It's not in a major city. But they did a terrible job planning it. And they decided that they would have Hell's Angels, which is a motorcycle group. Such a good idea. uh, Known before they had the San Francisco chapter, which really was known as like a peace-loving, like easygoing, trying to rehabilitate their image group. But before that, they had been like this rough and tumble gang that were very feared to the point where they could provide concert security. And they had done so for bands like the Grateful Dead. Altamont was a terrible plan. But what could go wrong with no toilets, no medical tents, Hell's Angels as the guards and no ticket price and no headcount? Nothing. So we just let anyone and everybody in, and then we have the Hells Angels just to manage them. Right, and the Hells Angels were allegedly paid with $500 worth of beer for concert security. So they're getting sloshed. I bet there was some Coke in there. <laughs> yeah, probably so. So it's either Jerry Garcia's idea to have Hells Angels do security or Ken Kesey's. Oh, God. <laughs> so one of those two people. So drugs were involved. Drugs were me. involved. I like to think it was Kesey. It was probably Jerry Garcia. <laughs> I like to blame Mick. Oh, yeah. Well, you should. You should blame him. The thing had been moved like four times. It had been planned in no time at all. They'd been made fun of because they were charging such high ticket prices. People said that they were like the world's richest poor people. They had no money. And they came to America to do this tour to try and get a hold of some money. Now, it's important to note that they had hired a film crew. Yeah, because Woodstock, the movie, 
yes. was going to be coming out and it was generating a ton of buzz and money. And so they were going to do this documentary that Mick Jagger and the Stones would have the sole rights to distribute yes. and own the copyright. It would be theirs. It would be a cash cow for years to come. Yes. So we have all of the worst dominoes in place. Yes. So who's going to be there? I got to know. I'm camping out the night before and I am here to see either Crosby, Stills and Nash, Santana, mm. Fun, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Underrated. Underrated. The Grateful Dead. Of course. Rated just right. <laughs> They're amazing. Rated just right. Just right. <laughs> they got their own ice cream flavor. When? Just right. And the Stones. I'm here to see these bands. Jefferson and Jefferson Airplane. Airplane. 300,000 people show up. And the Angels were enjoying the fermented fruits of their labor. And the mood soured over the course of the day. Jefferson Airplane singer Marty Balin was punched and knocked unconscious by one of the bikers during the group's set while on stage. It's going well. So the dead saw that Balin had been punched and were like, Peace out. Oh, come on. No. It's right there. We got to keep trucking. Oh, no. We got to keep trucking, they say. And they do. Um, And so they pull out from the concert and that leaves this gap. Because there's no one to take their place, and they were supposed to go on right before the Stones. So the crowd's getting agitated. Now, the Stones are not having a good time either, because Mick Jagger was punched by a fan when he left the band's helicopter. And he was so shaken, nervous. And he was, like, noticing that the crowd was antsy. And he was saying things like, just be cool down in the front. Don't push around. They stopped during their set... On the third song, Sympathy for the Devil, while Jagger was admonishing the crowd and then restarted and like just plowed through, even though there were like fights and the mud and the blood and the beer. Mud and blood and the beer is all going on. Now, Mick Jagger began singing Under My Thumb, and Meredith Curley Hunter, who is an 18 year old fan, tried, along with other fans, it was not just him, to climb on stage. And Hell's Angels stepped in and blocked him. But Hunter, who had, in his defense, was behaving like an 18-year-old who had been at a free rock concert all day and, you know, was not sober, did not take this well. And there may have been a gun pulled. On a Hell's Angel. On a Hell's Angel. Who reacted poorly. Alan Pissarro was his name. And he pushes the gun aside and he stabs Hunter repeatedly, killing him. The band continues to play. (sighs) They complete their set because they're afraid if they stop, there's going to be a riot. Right. Hunter's autopsy revealed that he had a lot of meth in his system, but there had been acid passed out that day that was laced with meth that people would not have known was laced with Uh. meth. It's a mess. It's a fucking mess. (laughs) So then we get the line, the flames climbed high into the night. The stones were helicoptered out as the scene further deteriorated. And the sacrificial rite is, like, the guy actually being killed at the concert, like, sacrificed to this antichrist of rock and roll, which Mick Jagger is not that cool and does not deserve that much credit. (laughs) Again, Jagger wanted to keep all the proceeds from Give Me Shelter, which was going to be about this concert. And he really hoped that the concert would make the Stones bigger than the Beatles. We're back to Jack Flash set on a candlestick. 
had a bee in his bonnet about the Beatles. So altogether that day, four people died. Oh my God. Two, I just thought of neither one guy. The, well, the guy was murdered, yes. which stands out. So we have what is often considered just the incident that is like kind of the touchstone of the death of the summer of love and hippies and flower children. This is when Rock gets mad. Let's take it on home even more. I met a girl who sang the blues and I asked her for some happy news but she just smiled and turned away I went down to the sacred store where I'd heard the music years before but the man there said the music wouldn't play and in the streets the children screamed the lovers cried and the poets dreamed but not a word was spoken the church bells all were broken and the three men i admire most the father son and the holy ghost they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died so who is the girl that sang the blues? Janis Joplin. She is. Who played at Woodstock. And she had just died when McLean was writing the song. You may revisit the 27 Club for more information on that. She died on October 4th of 1970. And he's looking to her as the person who can carry the torch, right? He's saying, like, ask her for some happy news. And she just smiled and turned away. Like, she couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle the pressure. In the streets, the children screamed. I think this either has to do with that famous photo taken to the kid in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I never thought of that. Uh, or, like, the student protesters who were being beaten or killed. Yeah. Kent State, etc. Lovers cried, poets dreamed. Not a word was spoken. Church bells all were broken. So, one writer pointed out that in songs like A Hard Rain... Is going to fall by Bob Dylan. There are lines like, I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken. And Simon and Garfunkel had Sound of Silence come out. So there's a lot of writing. There's something in the air at this time about this, this feeling that voices are being silenced. Not heard, even. And then the church bells all were broken. I think is interesting. I don't know if it's right or not. But there's this legend that the crack and the Liberty Bell came from... The day it told for the funeral of a former Supreme Court justice. Oh, I know that's Chief not justice. true. No, it's not true. The crack was there from the beginning. It's a poorly made bell, but that's beside the point. The point <laughs> is... Our American symbol is a poorly made bell. Shut up! <laughs> it broke when the Marquis de Lafayette came. No, it broke when the Supreme Court... Anytime we need it to have broken from a momentous occasion, we can just say it did. Because this is America, and the facts don't matter. <laughs> It's so true. So the idea that a significant death or loss would cause bells to break, I thought was an interesting tie. And like a very American Liberty Bell. And there had been so many significant deaths and just so many deaths again. And then we have the three men I admire most. Of course, the day the music died. Wait, I mean, yes, you can obviously read it as Big Bopper Valens and Buddy Holly. Like that's not a stretch. Um, I mean, tying it back to the beginning makes sense. Yeah. 
But then there's an idea that it's just God in general. God steps away. We're no longer the blessed city on the hill. God is Shining dead. city on the hill. God is dead. Uh, Time Magazine had a cover that said, Is God dead? The Beatles were bigger than God. He just packed his shit and left. He was like, enough. <laughs> um, but there's another idea that I like that it's Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, and John F. Kennedy. It's these major cultural figures that were trying to embody the optimism that the 50s held. And the 60s. And the 60s. But, you know, they were very publicly killed for having these optimistic, forward-looking ideas. In my mind, the last train for the coast is the train carrying Bobby Kennedy back to the East Coast. This is his funeral train. Okay. And everyone says it's the West Coast, but there's no text for that in the song. Right, there's nothing. And McLean is from the East Coast. So why not? Why not the East Coast, I say to you? Now, here's a fun fact. And music on music on music, reference on reference on reference. The song Killing Me Softly. You know that song? I know the Fugees song. It's like that, (laughs) but not the Fugees. Lori Lieberman saw McLean perform this song and wrote that song about this song. Interesting. But before we conclude and say that we figured out American Pie and all its complexity, which we haven't. uh, We didn't. But we talked about it. And that's something. You should know that in 2015, Don McLean sold his original manuscript of American Pie for $1.2 million. Good on you, Mr. McLean. And before this time, his answer, whenever anyone said to him, Don McLean, what does American Pie mean? He would say, it means I never have to work again. (laughs) Which is funny. Good for you. But when he sold the manuscript, it was revealed that the song originally had a different ending. And there I stood, alone and afraid, and I dropped to my knees, and there I prayed. And I promised him everything I could give, if only he would make the music live. And he promised it would live once more, but this time one would equal four. And in five years, four had come to mourn, and the music was reborn. I love this hopeful ending, this hopeful kind of alternative ending, that the music will continue to live. You know, with the music, it's also the personalities of the generation. Mm -hmm. And music changes, music changes over time, and it says so much about who we are as a generation. Right. And we can look at the disparate elements that existed in the 30s and 40s that all came together from every culture that was part of the United States to create rock and roll. And with rock and roll, it just continued to grow and change with each generation. We have our teenage music that's encompassing this new baby boomer generation that is all optimism, all new. And then it changes more with the 60s. And we have this different type of optimism. There are these bad things that happen, but we can change it. And then you have the 70s, where some of that optimism gets squashed and really gets knocked out. And that's what you know Don McLean's talking about in this song. I think it's the most important element, is that it's talking about the end of one generation and kind of handing it off to the next. And you can really see it with that second verse. It's like a few years later, some more people came. The music's going to keep living again. 
music's going to keep going on. They'll keep living. And See, what you're saying is that rock and roll will never die. Will never die. And it will keep telling the story of the generation and the people that are making it. And that's not just a story. That's not just a story. And they were singing bye-bye Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee but the levee was dry And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I